Hey everybody, what's going on? This is as Lutheran as it gets. Welcome to the show. I am Pastor Donovan Riley, joined as always by the Predator, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yep, ready to rock and roll. And we are coming to you uh, broadcasting from the Behavioral Sciences Unit, lower level of HT headquarters in Quebec, Ontario, Canada today. Huh. The Great White North. Yeah, went ice fishing this morning. Nice, nice change of pace. You know, my wife, my wife grew up in Portland, Oregon, and she has yet to go on to a frozen lake. <laughs> uh, we, we've been married almost 20 years, but uh, she insists that it's unnatural to walk on, on frozen water. <laughs> I guess I can see that. You know, my organist is afraid of snakes. If she's on a riding lawnmower and sees a snake in the grass, she'll jump off the lawnmower and run inside. And my wife has a phobia about frozen water. You what could just like do? drive right over them. With your the blades uh, that, and all that—that that was my suggestion. <laughs> it's like you've a, you actually have a weapon. You're piloting. <laughs> the reason that we uh, we can do that is because we have opposable thumbs, and uh, we've conquered that area of nature. <laughs> Absolutely. At least when you're on a riding lawnmower, you have. Uh huh. <clears throat> and in Minnesota, we don't really have poisonous snakes where I live at. Along the St. Croix River Valley, there's rattlesnakes and copperheads and cottonmouths, but mm-hmm. here, the worst you get is a gardener snake. Yeah, that's not bad at all. No, of course not. So today, today, today is the day uh, we are going to go into uh, a hidden gem of a book from uh, the not-so-distant past. This was published in 1959, and then the second printing was in 1961, published by Concordia Publishing House. It's called Worship in Word and Sacrament by Ernest B. Kunker, K-O-E-N-K-E-R. And as I, we were saying before the podcast, I was turned on to this by our friend, Pastor Bront Hoffman, who kept raving about it to me. And I said, well, where am I going to find a copy of a book published in the 19, late 1950s without really digging around online, especially such an obscure book? And then randomly, I was cleaning out our church's library and it was on the shelf in our church's library. Yeah. And uh, one of the only books in my church's library that I did not uh, donate to the goodwill. I don't know where mine came from. I, I know I have a copy in a box somewhere, but um, I don't know where I got it. it. Just appeared. So here's a question: Is it that the church library ends up being a kind of heterodox, heretical dumpster fire because people donate those materials to the church after a parent or a grandparent dies, and it's really just the revelation of what their their personal piety is outside of the congregation on Sunday mornings? Or mm. is it years and years of collecting these materials for Bible studies, pastoral studies, or is it a combination of both, do you think? I don't know. Hey, I went on Amazon. It looks like I bought it on November 15th, 2014. Uh, where did it come from? You know, this is interesting because... Uh, my vicar's congregation was in mid-Michigan. There's a bunch of Lutherans. Anyway, you go to the the public library in town, and they had, in the basement, a book sale all the time. And because there's so many Lutherans around, there's Lutheran books. There's always Lutheran books. And they were always good ones. I'm like, huh. there'd be a bunch of junk, of course, too, but there were always good ones down yeah. there. Like, why did somebody get rid of this? It doesn't right. make any sense. Maybe they're cleaning out their attic. You know, it was their parents mm-hmm. or something. Or the pastor you know, no longer reads because he knows sure. everything or I don't know. I don't it, it's an interest. It's been interesting to me because when I visit, uh, especially the widows who are 80 plus years old. Yeah. 
especially my 90 plus year old widows, they're the ones who gift me their catechisms that they received when they were confirmed, the mm -hmm. German English catechisms with the old German Groff font yeah. and their hymnals and their Bibles. And what I find fascinating about the, that's, those are folks that were born around the first world war. Yeah. And they're, you can see where they read their Bibles the most because of the oil stains from their thumbs or their fingers on the pages. And also they're written in lots of notes, lots of underlining, lots of colored pencil, red colored pencil, blue colored pencil, lots of writing in the margins. Very interactive use of hymnal catechism in Bible. Then you jump forward to the boomers and... This is what I mean by you get a lot of Baptist theology. Uh, you get the Pat Robertsons, the, mm -hmm. the, the uh, what is it? Schuler, Oral Roberts, a lot of 70s, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Very, very significant departure from their parents' generation. And maybe that's a part of it too, is, is that every generation swings the opposite direction, goes yeah. into the opposite ditches their parents because they think they did it wrong. We're going to get it right kind of deal. <laughs> and it's it in the Bible's not marked up, not, not really, you know, stained with the oil from their fingers. The, mm -hmm. the hymnals beat up, broken spines torn up. It's in the attic or it's in a closet somewhere. Catechism non-existent. I've not, I've never received a catechism from someone of the second world war generation. That's something. Yeah. Yeah, it's a strange thing. And when you ask them, and they're the ones who will ask me at funerals or before funerals, can you find so-and-so's confirmation verse? Because oh, we right. don't have it. Right. Versus uh, sitting right behind me on the shelf, I have marriage certificates, confirmation certificates, baptismal certificates that date back to 1896 that were given to me by widows in their 90s uh, shortly before their death because they wanted them preserved and they were afraid that their children and grandchildren wouldn't appreciate them. Mm -hmm. And they knew their confirmation verses. They had the hymns picked out for their funerals ahead of time. They knew what Bible verse they wanted read. They want. They even uh, said, "I would really like you to preach on this gospel lesson." Right. Versus their kids' generation, their generation, which would be our grandparents. Uh, I often am asked, "Do you know what her favorite hymns were, or what Bible verses can you suggest to us?" Or we couldn't really find anything in the house. There's nothing written down. It's a very strange thing to see the, the change between those two generations. And I know it's not universally true, and maybe it's the exclusion that doesn't prove the rule, but at least in my experience here as pastor, this is what I've encountered. And the church library and the libraries of the congregations around me are a reflection of that. Yeah. yeah. And then it's almost as if it dried up in the 80s and 90s. The congregation that I'm serving in has a board for Christian education. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it because uh, we use, I mean, I like to use the word catechism, right? Or catechization, we might mm -hmm. say, right? The, the verb. Catechesis, catechization. Catechesis or catechization. Right. But not education, because education is basically, I, you're conveying ideas, right? Right. Or knowledge, if we want to just say that. And, you know, what we do in church isn't really conveying knowledge, but I think people... Uh, approach the catechism that way, like a textbook. Like, here's the things I need to learn, just the things, right? Right. And then once I've learned it, like every other textbook, you recycle it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. We were talking about this last week or a couple weeks ago in relation to the Elon Musk 
tweet about um, I didn't go to Harvard, but a lot of people who went to Harvard work for me. So oh, don't confuse right. education with schooling. Hmm. I think that's where this parochialism comes from, whether it be in the church or in other spheres, that there's a confusion between what education is versus what schooling is. Right. And it lends itself to this kind of parochialism. As you said, I learned it or, or you're taught this way. This is right. Memorize it. Mm. Versus let the rabbinic style, the the traditionally rabbinic style, which is you're taught the language of the text, then you are asked questions about the text, and then you ask questions about the text, mm-hmm. and it's this process. And uh, uh, Willem Leia actually, in his catechesis, adopts this method for the most part. Is the first year of confirmation, you just teach them the basic language the grammar, the basic concepts of the catechism, for example. The second year, you start asking them questions. And Leia added, Leia ended up with over 900 questions in his catechism. <laughs> yeah, we complained about the synodical catechism, but look <laughs> right. at that. But then the third year, the students were the ones asking the questions. Mm, right. And then by the end of confirmation in the fourth year, when you come to confirmation Thursday or confirmation Saturday, First, the pastor would engage the confirmants with questions and in, in the form of a dialogue, not in the form of, I mm-hmm. ask the question, you spit mm-hmm. out the right answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leo was very concerned, not only with memorization, but that the confirmand had a grasp of the material and could engage it and, and discuss it. What right. We would call it owning, owning your confession of faith, so to speak. Right. And then the elders were allowed to ask questions and the parents, but then... After all the questions from the elders and the parents and the adults ended, then the confirmands would be allowed to ask the pastor, the elders, and their parents questions. And we, we've we had this conversation in my congregation when uh, elders of the church have demanded that we go back to a, a more, tra- quote-unquote, traditional form of catechesis, which is memorization. And I said, I've got a great form to use from Willem Lea. The only hitch is that you have to be present for confirmation so that you can answer their questions. And that immediately shut down that conversation. Yep, that's the end of it. Well, <laughs> and, and the problem, I think the problem for that or what's maybe makes people nervous or even defensive is the idea that, um, you know, that the faith is is not this, it's not a purely static thing. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously we have the, we have our doctrines in the creed, right? So it's established. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the doctrines as they're kind of, as they're given to us by Luther in the catechism, right? Correct. Uh, but, but they're, the way that they interact with each individual in their life um, and the things they experience, I mean, it's going to, it's going to necessarily differ. Correct. You know, and, and if your background is, as an unbeliever, then you're attached to the third article of the, of the creed, for example. Right. You know, exactly. Cause it's a big deal to you, uh, your conversion. Whereas, you know, those of us who got baptized as little babies, you know, it's like conversion mm-hmm. is not as significant um, for us. It should be, mm-hmm. but it isn't. Right? right. We might be more hung up on the nature or of the, at least not the focal point. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not. Um, because I mean, we started from a young, I started from a young age, I should say, just, mm-hmm. you know, uh, intensely trying mm-hmm. to walk a Christian life, whatever that might look like. Mm-hmm. I know, and the catechism can certainly assist with that 10 commandments and table of duties, et cetera. Would you say that your introduction to the Christian faith was a school, a schooling, a pro- kind of parochial schooling in the faith? And that later, maybe in high school or even in college, that's when you started your education? in the Christian faith that you were challenged to make a good confession? No, I would have flipped it the other way around. Um, I mean, I would use the terms different. So uh, it began with what I would say education. I mean, we just said, we just said the catechism and we memorized it as part of day school. I went to Christian day Mm -hmm. school, Lutheran day school. Uh, And we just said, we just learned the words, which was good. That's a good place to start. 
um, we, we didn't really have dialogue with it until seventh, eighth grade. And, but then the dialogue was more in the form of still not so much a back and forth with the pastor or with parents, mm-hmm. but really just more lecture style um, with, with that text, with the Q&A in the back of the catechism. Mm-hmm. We never really got to the point where um, there was an opportunity even for like my fellow catechumens to say, yeah, I'm not so sure about this, you know? Can, can, let's work through this, this you mm-hmm. know, whatever doctrine it is, you know, whichever right. part of the catechism. Let's work through this a little bit because it's not clicking for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's where I think uh, as a pastor, but even parents too, we get a little defensive because we're worried that's the kid like saying, I don't believe anymore or something. <laughs> yes. You yeah. know? And rationalism peeking out. So like, for example, um, the congregation where I serve, they, they move confirmation to seventh grade from eighth grade because then they could disconnect it from graduation. All right. That's a nice idea. But then, as the as the one parent reflected, uh, the kids still leave the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it it wasn't because it's connected to eighth grade and graduation. And we leave the school. It's actually because they they just live in a world that's that's challenging their faith. And mm-hmm. in my opinion, we're not really equipping um, the children to dialogue with people who have different opinion about what well, the world is, who they are, what yeah. scriptures say, even. I was listening to a podcast this morning. It's called the Jiu-Jitsu Brotherhood, and uh, the interview. <laughs> Go figure. Again, t- ding ding. Ten bucks. I know. Um, it's not just a. It's not just a, a martial art. It's a lifestyle, man. It's a lifestyle. Uh, but he was interviewing a friend of his that lives in Thailand. He's lived there for seven years, but he's from Canada originally, Toronto. Mm-hmm. I think it was Toronto, and or he moved to Toronto. I can't remember. Anywho, he's living in Thailand. He married a, a girl from Thailand, a woman from Thailand. And he was asked the difference between living in Thailand versus living in Canada. And hmm. he said the biggest the, the the biggest hurdle to get over when you move into that culture in Thailand is it's not a they don't have a Western materialistic ethic. Hmm. And for example, in Thailand, people burn incense every day to their ancestors and they do things to honor and recognize the spirits and ghosts. And they're very aware that what you see and perceive isn't all there is to the world. That's not the the be all end all of reality, your five senses. And again, regardless of, of what you as a listener uh, think or believe about spirits, ghosts, the supernatural type of things. The, the point being that he pointed out in the, in the, in the West growing up in Canada or the United States, and even in Europe, Great Britain, it's a Western materialistic ethic where science and math, they, they, basically dictate the course of a conversation and there's no place for what the five senses cannot comprehend or apprehend in the Western materialistic ethic. This is why Marxism is so popular. Neo-Marxism is so popular right now in the United States. But that what he laments then is that it would be very difficult or impossible for him to move back into Western culture because he, he sees now how handicapped, like it's like only having one eye open when you walk around during the day. Oh yeah. And that being introduced, so for example, in the Western materialistic um, culture, time is linear and it is, it has benchmarks throughout. So if I say, let's record this podcast at 3 p.m., we're going to record this, this podcast at 3 p.m. sharp because three o'clock is on a continuum of time, a linear time. Yeah. Thank you, in Mr. the Westerner. East, three o'clock is kind of like this cloud. <laughs> it's not linear. It's not fixed. But rather when they say three, maybe 3.30 maybe quarter to three 
and he, this man said that that was the biggest hurdle to get over was we're going to, we're going to train. The class begins at three and people would wander in at three thirty and, and look at him like, what's your problem? Why are you so upset that we're here at three thirty? where we said three, it's three <laughs> versus in the Plus West, or minus, three right, is yeah. literally three o'clock and not a minute later. And I think that's what I encountered when I lived in Mexico and traveled in Central America, the same understanding of time. Yeah. And the lack of stress and anxiety about time is what I notice every time, every year when I go back to visit, that's what I notice immediately is how not stressed and anxious people are about time the way that I am when I get there. And then I realize, oh, I've gotten wound up again and I've made a big deal out of something that's not even real. This artifact that we've invented to give meaning to our life. We have that church, right? With the service times. 60 minutes. It's got to be 60 minutes. Church of the Lutheran hour. And uh, right. And you look at it's like why are you in such a big hurry? For a long time, mm-hmm. I stopped wearing a watch. I don't. I wear an Apple Watch now. It's black. Um, it doesn't actually show anything on the display. So, mm. you know. But I, you know, I didn't even wear a watch because I didn't want people to think that I was even aware of time. Correct. You know? Because I Correct. don't think we really should be. And, and well, speak- I don't care. That's why I don't wear a watch. I don't care about time. I know yeah. where I'm supposed to be. I'll show up. <laughs> and what is uh you know the the we mentioned Leia again. You mentioned his catechism, but it's him that's in our hymnal. Um, you know, wide open stand the gates. The last Correct. stanza is like, um, in the sacrament, what does he say? That we're joined time with eternity. Mm-hmm. You know, that that we're really outside of time. I don't, I'm never like, why are we in such a big hurry to get out of here? Don't you enjoy being at church? <laughs> you know, where do you, where, where better yeah. do you have to be? Well, and this goes to the point of catechesis, then we treat catechesis according to a linear concept of uh, time. Right whether it's two years or three years, or God forbid you have a four-year confirmation curriculum Mm -hmm. like I do. When I first proposed bringing back a four-year curriculum, which was in this congregation originally, and then in the 70s and 80s was shortened to three and then eventually two. And I explained that the reason I wanted to spend four years with these confirmands is because I wanted to be their pastor and establish this relationship that I hoped would last their lifetime. Right. And that two years isn't enough time for me to establish that kind of relationship because I've got to get through the material. And the parents and the elders have expectations of me as the teacher for what they are to learn and not learn versus my approach, which is that traditional rabbinic uh, understanding of, of education, of teaching, which is the first year I just introduced these people to the Bible and to the catechism and to the liturgy. And we talked like last week, we're now with my first year class, we're into the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. and we've spent two weeks. We haven't even gotten past the first the introductory, what you know, what is the Lord's Supper? Because how do you tell a child that the that God is in the bread, but it's still the bread, right. and expect them to so understand that in a rationalistic way? Because I don't, Mm-mm. you know, I have an IQ of what is it, one hundred and fifty or forty nine or whatever the heck it is. I don't understand that, and I I test on the genius scale on, for Mensa. So <laughs> that, that means nothing in relation to divinity. It means nothing mm-hmm. in relation to That's the right. word of God. That's right. But because rather, we're, we're not but, talking about education. Right. And we're also not talking in a, uh, again, this Western materialistic, if I can't grasp it with my five senses, it's not real to mm-hmm. me, to you, to us. And therefore, to your point too, when we get locked into this understanding of time and this understanding of education and learning as something linear, and that the end has to have a a, a goal that we can see, hmm. that we can that you have to stand up in front of the congregation and and regurgitate these answers you've memorized, 
without really being asked, do you even understand what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Or have you, uh, I, my son and I talked about this yesterday. There's lots of doctors who graduate with a 4.0 who can't think. They're just really good at taking tests. Yeah. And when you talk to them and they've only got seven minutes to, to sit and, and diagnose whatever is ailing you, you realize very quickly that as far as education, they're they're very educated, they're very knowledgeable and well-read, and yet it's a very limited uh, mm-hmm. knowledge base. Mm-hmm. And that because of the limitations of their vocation, they're not really at freedom, at liberty to go outside of that, to, to improve themselves. Right where they're deficient. So for example, our doctors know nothing about nutrition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We We're talk constant. about the establishment, right? Yeah. And that, and it's like medicine is not static. You practice medicine. Right. In theory. Well, I mean, that's, that's the language we use, but in right. practice, uh-huh, funny, uh, doctors don't, they tend to be pretty static. Although I, I mean, there's, they have to take the, it's like the bar exam, whatever the equivalent is for, for medical. Right. Yeah. They have regular examination, so they have to stay up on whatever the current trends are mm-hmm. in medicine, but it's still an establishment trend. You know, it's probably 20, 30, 50 years behind. Right. And this goes to the point of this Western materialistic tradition because medicine is a science. Mm-hmm. And as one doctor said, uh, I think it was Chris Kessler said, science is the history of many people being wrong most of the time. <laughs> yeah. It's a rare, it's fluid. Yeah. It's rare that somebody like Einstein comes along who has a theory that actually um, sticks. Right. Exactly. That uh, as we discover different evidence, as we, dis- as someone comes up with a better uh, theorem or whatever it may be, or equation, we're constantly shifting and textbooks don't know, though. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson published that mock-up of the universe and said, yeah, everything you've been taught about how planets orbit the sun and the sun's movement and everything, it's all wrong. It really looks like this. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like electrons and neutrons and so forth circling an atom. Because now we know that even electrons are more of a cloud Mm -hmm. than these Mm -hmm. particles that dance around the the, uh, nucleus. And, of course, people like you and me who grew up in a system that taught us that this is the solar system, this is how it works, this is dogma. It's mm-hmm. right. Memorize it. Yeah. Don't question it. And you and I were not given the vocabulary or the the concepts in order to say, wait, the sun is moving through space. It's not just it's static. It's not just setting there in place and we're all revolving around it. Uh, no one ever told me that. Yeah, that's earth shattering right there. Right. And so you see that in your brain, my brain anyways, immediately rejects it as fantasy. Hmm. Oh, that's just NASA trying to keep their our interest so they can get more money from the government right. for their projects. By the way, Pluto is a planet. Pluto is a planet, 100%. So is Nerebo. Uh Nibiru, sorry, Nibiru. 10th planet. Whoop. Actually, it's the 11th planet. But, um, it's ten, that's a 10th planet jiu-jitsu reference that about two people got. But um, And then I stepped back and went, well, wait a minute. Am I rejecting what Neil deGrasse Tyson is asserting because it's not true or because it flies in the face and conflicts with my, my education, my schooling? Hmm. And then to the point at hand, if we don't, prepare our confirmands through catechesis to, as you said, be able to engage people in all of the different contexts, all the different vocations in which they are sent. Mm-hmm. What are we doing yeah. to prepare them for their life as Christians? Because I'm not always going to be their pastor, probably. I'm not always going to be there to answer their questions. They may have a pastor that teaches the complete opposite of what I teach. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they may marry someone of a different denomination or religion altogether. Mm-hmm. And what is the purpose 
I think I've said this on the podcast before. I have a friend who believes the earth is flat mm-hmm. and I listen to him. And then I just say, hey, you know, get off YouTube, get off Instagram, go read a book on quantum physics, go read a book on physics uh, by by legitimate hard scientists who don't have some agenda. And that ultimately, whether the Earth is round, flat, pear shaped, whatever, exists in multiple dimensions simultaneously. How does this change you as a person in a way that's going to improve you personally and improve the people around you in their life? It's, it's interesting to know this stuff. It's interesting to have these conversations. And yet in the end, I ask, how does this help you keep your house clean and in order? Right. And how does this better the lives of the people around you? Or does it give you a false sense of superiority because you know something other people don't? Well, I think there's a, the point is, is there's an art uh, to the faith. It's, it's not Absolutely. science, it's art. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's involving technique uh, in part, which is, uh, and so the catechism becomes a tool Mm-hmm. that we use um but it's not it's not the end all it's it's right. not really the only tool i mean obviously scriptures are the primary tool that we right. have well it is a closed system mm. take the lutheran confessions for example the lutheran confessions it's a closed system those those questions have been settled <laughs> and yet simultaneous to that what i try and do as a teacher is to teach how within that closed system we can address the questions that come at us in a way that accepts and receives the question in a way that is, we would call it evangelical or charitable. Yeah. And how then do I make that confession that this is a closed question? This is not an open question. And like, for example, um, uh, my, my favorite intellectual right now, public intellectual is Jordan Peterson. And he talks about how 40 years ago, this whole question of the differences between the genders was settled 40 years ago. And yet now, there is this movement within our society that says, no, gender roles are, it's not a settled set of definitions, that there's almost no difference between men and women, and gender doesn't matter. Right. It's a social construct, which is, a, again, a neo-Marxist postmodern move to say gender is a social construct. And there are victims and victimizers, oppressors of the oppressed, winners and losers, and we look at all of life this way. But as Peterson points out, the science on this was settled over 40 years ago. Why are we arguing about this as if it's an open question? It's not. And there's no legitimate scientist, social scientist, psychologist today who doesn't believe the same thing. It's only people that don't understand how to read statistics. They don't read the Mm -hmm. primary literature. In in essence, and I'm getting to a point here because I want to use this to segue into the, the book is that when you get to the end of why there's this push to say there's no difference between genders, it's a social construct, or I can, you have to call me by this pronoun, or uh, sex is a social, you know, all these things. What it is for Peterson is it's a hatred of being. He says really what, they're not progressive at all. They're not liberal in the sense of being free to explore ideas and concepts and engage in dialogue with people you disagree with. They're the complete opposite of that. They're, they're very dictatorial and totalitarian in their idealism. And if you don't agree with them, then you're a bigot and a homophobe and you're transphobic and a misogynist and you're a part of the white male um, establishment, so forth and so on. But I was listening to Pearson talk about this in an interview about their hatred of being, that they're attacking being itself yeah. by attacking gender, for example, or biology. And this goes to the point of perception versus reality, of course. 
mm-hmm. because they're trying to they're treating their perception as if it is reality and anyone who disagrees with that or attempts to insert reality into their argument mm-hmm. is immediately labeled as a nazi right or so forth but i was thinking about it building off of this once we've gotten god out of the public conversation there is no god there is no um, natural law argument to be had based on divine will. Once we've gotten rid of God, because we we want to be God in God's place, we get rid of God, and now we can begin the business of being gods, mm-hmm. knowing right and wrong, good and evil. Right. The problem with behaving as if we're gods is that we're not God. And the more that we follow that path of behaving like we are divine, that we can actually control and manipulate the outcomes of good and evil, right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, what ends up happening is what Peterson describes, which is we end up hating being because Mm. we can't actually change who we are. Right. And so once we've gotten rid of God, first part of the problem, gone, eliminated. Fantastic. God's out of the way. Now we can get down to the business of actually making the world a better place. We got God and all those crazy religious wingnuts out of the way. Right, because God's responsible for the world not being a better place. Right. And that the whole the whole argument for pro-choice versus pro-life, the whole argument for the legalization of certain drugs and not certain drugs, how social mores are enacted, and it's all a hangover of puritanical society and this Western European religious dogma that comes down through the Roman Catholic Church. We got rid of all that. Okay. Fantastic. We're finally free from those shackles. We're out of the prison. Nice idea. Now we can make change. Now, of course, what has happened is that that change isn't happening because reality is some people are born with an XY set of chromosomes and some aren't. Yeah. And you, you can say that you are a man or a woman. You can say that you're a mermaid or a fox. Chromosomes don't lie. <laughs> and you, you, can manip- you can manipulate and mutilate your body to look differently. But chromosomes don't lie. Mm. And so now the second part of the project, and this is the nihilism that sets in at this point. And this is what I think you see with the social justice equality of outcome you know, groups is that reality is set in and they've doubled down and they've hardened their position. And the reason is because they hate being. They hated God. They got rid of God. And now that they can't change everybody to suit their worldview, their perspective, and make that a reality, now they just hate being. They hate the reminder that you're not a god and that ultimately you have no control whatsoever over reality. Yeah. And then you just vainly pursue some, you know, idea of what reality should be, which is always a moving target. And always results in violence. Right. To yourself or to others. Right. This is the key point, too, that if I can't win you over by the force of my argument, I have to destroy you because you're a reminder that what I am stating as reality isn't real. It's a, it's a perception. It's an mm. idea that I'm trying to put out there into the world and make a, a reality, but it's not reality itself. Yeah. And this is why you'll see social justice warriors and these equality of outcome people constantly pushing to give the government more power and, and to basically enforce their ideologies through legislation. Mm. Because if you say to me, I don't like you referring to my daughter in the feminine pronoun sense, because my daughter should be free to choose her own gender. And I say, well, that's absurd. You live in a fantasy land, and I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do to, to change my heart or my mind about that or force me to do it. But 
if you can find someone to enact legislation that makes it against the law for me to reject that, that's the that's the force of law. That's the force of an ideal mm-hmm. that's that's attempting to make reality over in our own image or our, our own ideals. Well, and the typical and, mechanism in regards to having the state, you know, kind of project these ideals is through right. education, through schools. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, and that's, it's almost a Trojan horse. So you can get almost any agenda, you know, into Correct. the ears of the kids. You just have to wait a generation for them to, right. it's for to the kids. play out. Right. Yeah, it plays out for the kids. So we give many, I mean, I don't personally, but many people mm-hmm. give a lot of, uh, a lot of authority to, the, to public education, um, Correct. you know, to bring their kids along and like what it means to be a good citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then in some cases in Europe, especially they gave, um, they give the responsibility of teaching the faith to the state as well. <laughs> you exactly. Well, you look at Mao's China, you look at, mm-hmm. uh, of course, Stalin, Hitler, you look at the Khmer Rouge, look at Venezuela today. Mm-hmm. This is a great point. Peterson points this out. Do you know how, so Venezuela has uh, an, eno- uh, an epidemic rate, we, I would call it, an epidemic rate of child deaths in hospitals, that children die in the hospital from malnutrition mm-hmm. and disease. Mm-hmm. So the way that the Venezuelan government dealt with this problem is they enacted a law, they made legislation that said it is illegal, it is against the law for a doctor to write on the death certificate that the child died in the hospital as a consequence of X, Y, and Z. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So they're not saying that the children aren't dying in hospitals. What they're saying is it's against the law for you to tell us that children are dying in these hospitals of starvation, for example. Wow. So it, it's okay if the ch- there's children dying in our hospitals. You just have to figure out a different way of describing it. Yeah. And so, that's how you do it is through re-education and indoctrination. So we were trying to get to the point that um, our Christian faith is a static reality, Right. That it, it's not a it's not a construct or, or you know it's not we don't have this like hopefulness we're not creating the faith I don't think it's a static or it's reality and it just is real we we attempt to make it static when God is living and active hmm. okay. I was talking with our friend Pastor Aaron Finker uh, who's the executive in charge of media he's our boss we were talking about this yesterday on the phone that what we do for example when we divide up the Old Testament and New Testament into well that's the God of the Old Testament this is the God of the New Testament yeah and we make it these static categories, is then we follow, for example, the Reformed teaching that there are all these prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, but not not Jesus. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is not in the Old Testament. He's in the New Testament. Versus what Dr. Luther says over and over and over and over again as an Old Testament scholar, the second person of the Trinity is all over the place, from mm-hmm. Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the end of the Bible. Yeah. And okay. that when you enforce these static artificial categories on the Trinity— what you end up doing is committing the heresy of modalism yeah. because the word of God is the word of God <laughs> and he is living and active yeah. and that God is active in creation right now. As we speak, this can, this whole podcast exists because the spirit of God is at work in creation, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Mm. And to cut God out of creation to say, well, God finished. He put everything the way it's supposed to be. And it's just our job to walk around parroting, these answers in this book and all you have to do to be a Christian is memorize these things under, you know, spit them out and it would help if you understood them. Now you're Christian Hmm. as if it's static. It's not static. Being a Christian, being a human being is fluid. Yeah. God is fluid in the sense of he's not standing there waiting for you to find him. He's not Hmm. hiding under a sheet like a child, but rather he's living and active. And this is why we do attempt to make these static categories because we're not, 
afraid that life has no meaning. We're afraid that our life is meaningless mm. in relation to the greater reality, which is there is a God. He is living and active in creation. He is speaking all things into existence. And that if you hate being, you hate the word of God. Yeah. If you hate who you are, you hate the fact that you can't be a mermaid. That's ultimately a rejection of Jesus. So so maybe the challenge is, like in Bible study, that we... Um... Uh, that it's it's really a dangerous activity in a sense because it, right. it may bring to question things that you thought you knew or that mm -hmm. you believed or that right. you understood about yourself or about God. Just it's revealed to you. It was already real. You just didn't believe it. Correct. Yeah. And this goes to the point too that what you see now in what's called the United States of America is this rampant tribalism. And it's toxic tribalism, as one person said, mm. in the sense of it's blue team versus red team, Republican versus Democrat, Lutheran versus Protestant, Roman Catholic, my football team versus your football team. Shout out to the New England Patriots, whom I love. Uh, Why? Uh, <laughs> Why? Because I always, or... <laughs> every time I watch Star Wars, I still root for the Empire to win. And for me, Tom Brady is Darth Vader uh, and Bill uh, Belichick uh, is uh, the uh, Emperor. Uh, <laughs> And the best part is, I, I started rooting for the Patriots in college when Bill uh, when Bill Parcells became the coach and they drafted Drew Bledsoe because oh, wow, the Vikings yeah. sucked okay, yeah. so bad in the 90s. Mm -hmm, and sure. my two best friends, uh, my one best friend uh, was an Oakland Raiders fan, diehard. And my other friend was a diehard uh, Vikings fan. And uh, they were constantly teasing me that I, I didn't have a true football team, a true team that I would root for. And uh, I was a big fan of Bill Parcells because I grew up watching the New York Giants. In the 80s, they were my favorite team. The Phil Simms era, um, Dave Bavaro, great, one of the greatest tight ends ever. Loved that team, loved Bill Parcells' attitude. And so when he came back to coaching and coached for the Patriots, I was like, ah, I'm on board with that. And Drew Bledsoe mm -hmm. was a phenomenal quarterback. Mm -hmm. And they were the underdog at that time too. They were overshadowed by the Giants and even the Jets. And uh, I started rooting for them and they went to the Super Bowl against the uh, Packers. Hmm. And uh, that was fantastic, of course, for me. Because all my friends who are Packers fan, I got to crow about that and, and so forth. And then I've always just been a Patriots fan because they're so hated. <laughs> and I always look at them. I'm like, they're the empire. They really are. They're the empire. And you, you want them to lose so bad, so bad. And yet they just keep winning. Oh, they're cheaters. Yeah, but they win. <laughs> or or they don't get enough penalties called. Yeah, they still win. Mm. It doesn't matter what. I, just like the empire. Actually, I think they're... They're they're even better than the empire. They're the empire that that isn't incompetent. <laughs> exactly, the Death Star doesn't get blown up on the page, on Bill Belichick's watch. No, not at all. <laughs> you might catch him laughing though. Exactly. So hopefully the Patriots win uh, in the Super Bowl that's coming up. That would be what? How many wins shortly. in the last sixteen years since Brady started? Uh, what are they? It's something like they've they've won the championship like ten times or something in fifteen oh, it, years, and then yeah. they've been to the Super Bowl what six times? Yeah, something like that. So this would be the and, sixth because Brady's been MVP four times. Okay. of the Super Bowl. Uh, and he's 40, so shout out to uh, all yep. of those folks, including myself, who have actually proven that age is not a hurdle to no. just doing what you want to do. And this is, uh, so this, this rampant tribalism, mm -hmm. which is within the church, it's everywhere. It's toxic because it, po to your point about Bible study, it, it, it ends up causing us or driving us to become willfully ignorant yeah. When when truth is in our face, because this parochialism that no, this is the way I was taught it, and it has to be this way. Well, but the text doesn't prove that, or 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 
or spell that out the way that you're you're expressing it. And maybe I'm not understanding you. Maybe it's just a matter of I'm not understanding how you're explaining it to me, or or maybe I'm wrong and I'm not understanding what I'm saying. But this is my point. I was talking with Pastor Finker about is when you look at all the other religions and say all of those gods aren't real gods. It's all fantasy. It's all that's just nonsense. How can you possibly believe those things? Mm. My God's the true God, and. I believe Jesus is the son of God and I believe God died and came back from the dead. And I believe that we eat and drink his body and his blood every week uh, because as it's laid out in the altar and that within that, then we say, well, only, but only Western Christians worship the real God. Eastern Christians worship a false God or they're, they're heterodox or whatever. And within that we say, well, only Lutherans are the true Christians and only, and only the LCMS Lutherans are the true and only my congregation or my district or, or my, my, group of congregations is the true church and only this group within the church is the true church or the true Christians. Maybe, and this goes back to a previous podcast where we talked about the difference between always repenting versus always reforming. Oh, right. Reform versus Lutheran understanding is maybe rather than act in a, in a kind of smug confidence that my God's the right God, my synod is the right synod. My church is the Orthodox church and an example for all other churches. Maybe, Instead of approaching it that way, we should approach it from the p- point of humbling ourselves before the Lord. Right. Because I think that argument is a static argument. My church is the right church. My God. Yes, I do believe Jesus Christ is the only true God, the only true Savior of the world. However, within that closed that closed system, that closed confession, that doesn't mean that I get to stand up on a soapbox and condemn everybody who doesn't believe exactly as I believe. But rather in humility, I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I don't know the truth. Mm-hmm. I know Jesus is the truth, but as far as the truth as an intellectual pursuit or the truth as a doctrinal exercise, right? again, I'm going on faith that my God's the true God. <laughs> there, and if we're honest, and maybe this will anger some people, but so be it. If we're honest, there's no proof whatsoever that what we believe is true. Because I, I use this example. I talked with a Muslim who had the almost exact same conversion story that I had. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He went, he, you know, he had a hard life. He grew up in a bad area, had bad parents, a bad social group, um, ended up an outlaw, so to speak. And through encountering uh, the Nation of Islam and these, these Muslims, you know, he was taken in by this group of people. He was instructed in the Quran. He was given rules and order for his life and mm-hmm. got out of the situation he was in and is an adult convert to Islam. I was like, holy crap, dude. <laughs> if you just swapped out Allah for Jesus, we have the exact same story. Yeah. So as much as I use my quote unquote, there it is again, quote unquote, I use my personal testimony. I think I use quote unquote for terms that I just find kind of dirty. Yep. hundred <laughs> percent. That, that I'm like, it kind of makes me feel gross when I say it. It's such a cliche. Um, but that even if I cite my own personal testimony as evidence that there is a God, mm. you encounter someone of a different religion who has a very similar testimony and you go, mm-hmm. oh, wait, maybe I, I should stop using that as the be all end all argument for why there's a God. Yeah. Because the closest, these people- the closest we get is that Jesus rose from the dead. Exactly. Right. And yet even that's a historical fact, but only in the sense of we believe it's a historical fact. None of us have any proof whatsoever that he actually rose from the dead other than what's written in the scriptures. I mean, I, I think the eyewitnesses are, that's a that's a trustworthy. Yes, but even the eyewitnesses are recorded in scriptures that happened over 2,000 years ago. I don't even know Napoleon Bonaparte was a real person. Yeah, you're such a postmodern. 
Right. This is my point, though, is that postmodernity has stripped away objectivity and said mm-hmm. everything is a matter of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Everything That's is right. a matter of where's the evidence? How you know where's the where where are my five senses brought to bear on proving whether this is true or false? Yeah, but it's only you, right? It's only your right. senses. You exactly. can't rely upon and, the eyes of other people, right? And yet, I do believe there is some relevance to that position, which is rather than fall back on your presuppositions into this kind of parochial tribalism, this toxic tribalism, be open to the possibility that you're wrong, right? And that your faith is that faith that you and I would confess as Lutherans is created by the Holy Spirit through the gospel and the gifts. And yet even that is accepted. I take that on faith even. Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing wrong with saying, I just take that on faith. I believe there's more to reality than just what my five senses can comprehend. Right. What you can see under a microscope or through a telescope. And that what this Western materialistic ethic has done to us, especially in relation to worship, and this is where I wanted to lead this conversation, is that it's actually turned worship into a kind of scientific experiment Mm. in the sense of where is the proof within worship that God is real, God is active in my personal life, and so forth and so on. Yeah. And then worship, the liturgy even, becomes this litmus test for where this theory is proven to be just a, a hypothesis or a fact. Right. And it's grounded in your senses, your feelings, your how it challenges you intellectually. Um, I'm often told by members of my congregation or visitors that a, our Bible study feels like I just got a seminary curriculum. Like mm-hmm. I got a seminary education going to your Bible study. And not in a negative way either, in a positive no, no, no. way of saying, you basically taught me so much in this bi- and I understood you should, you should it. be teaching at the seminary yeah exactly and <laughs> yeah. to which I say actually I, I learned most of this after seminary yeah right <laughs> I know <laughs> yeah. by by reading my church, my Lutheran fathers but right and this is my point then is what what the social justice warrior movement does what the equality of outcome movement does what this toxic tribalism does is it essentially says to you you as a person you as an individual is irrelevant yeah get in get in the car get in the boat and yet Western civilization is predicated on the belief, if you want to use that word, that the individual, one person, one vote, that the individual takes precedent over any group. And that you see this in Mao's China, you see this under the Khmer Rouge, you see this in modern Venezuela, Nazism, Soviet, the Soviet um, empire and so forth is you don't matter as an individual. All that matters is the collective whole. Yeah. And the 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 hyper individualism that comes out of Western capitalism, and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, be a self made individual, so and so on, is now under attack in our culture because everybody wants you. It, it's like I was listening to this interview that said that social media was a great experiment, but it failed, and we all know that now. This is why all these studies are being published about the psychological, social, and emotional detriment, destructiveness yeah. of social media. It, it was an interesting experiment, but it. it it was not successful. It was a failed. It yeah. is a failed. It's really a new. It's really from the get go a new advertising platform. Right. And yeah. so my point then, or my question, because you and I as pastors both encounter this regularly, I think, is within the context of the worship of the church, mm. you have personal individual faith. Within the context of this is the body of Christ. This is the assembly of believers. Your personal faith becomes immaterial within the context of the worship of the church 
because it's not about you as an individual, but rather about us. Mm-hmm. It's impersonal. As our friend Dr. S- or, uh, Pastor Swirla says, the Lord's Supper is the most impersonal event of your entire week because yeah. it has nothing to do with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. given and shed for you. but you are, you are brought into the body of Christ to receive the body and blood of Christ. Mm. And that you are simply receiving, you're part of that. And so as we read uh, through some of the text here of worship in word and sacrament, this is what I want to kind of, for you who's, who are listening, put that on the back burner, just keep that subtext in your mind of <clears throat> when you or your family or friends go to church on Sunday and you talk about worship, is it the one ditch of, well, it should be all about my individual experience or is it the other side of, no, get in, get in line. This is about us as a church and what you want or don't want doesn't matter. Yeah. And is it question. one or the other extreme? Yeah, good question. Let's deal with, let's deal with it. So worship and word in sacrament, page 10. We're going to start there. God's action on behalf of man. We're going to go there. Okay. Covered all that. My notes. Shout out to, well, Helio Gracie died nine years ago this week, January 29, 2009. If it wasn't for Helio Gracie, um, there would be no jujitsu in the United States, <laughs> except for maybe the Machados. But so, thank you to the Gracies. Thank you, Helio. Shout out to all the Gracies and for all they've done for us, for me, anyways, and for the, those that I, I train with. But um, I'm sorry, I'm just checking off boxes on my piece of paper. I wrote notes to myself. I got it. Let's just take a moment to appreciate the fact that I wrote notes for myself. <laughs> So for those of you who are listening who think we're just making this up as we go, 90% of the time, yeah, but I do write yeah. notes for myself. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, yeah. No. Nine times out of 10, you'd be correct to think that. Mm-hmm. Mental Squirrel. notes. Mental notes. Mental notes. So anyways, page 10 of Worship and Word and Sacrament by Ernst B. Koner. When we think of man's worship, we may think of this too as somehow man's own distinctive activity. We may think it must likewise be directed toward his own edification, well-being, or improvement. So there, there is the individualistic side that I was referring to. That's right. I didn't get something out of church today. I need to. Right. Mm-hmm. Much of worship in Protestant churches is such a man-centered or experience-centered thing. Worship is understood as conveying an experience, in quotes, to a congregation. This was the case particularly a generation or so ago. And again, he wrote this in 1959. Huh. So he's talking, uh, what, right before the Second World War or thereabouts the Second World War? I guess, yeah. yeah. A volume published in this period registers such a concern by its very title, The Quest for Experience in Worship. Hmm. I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. <laughs> the Quest for Experience in Worship. Worship is conceived as an act of remembering Christ, in quotes as an occasion for moral instruction, as the transmission of a vision, in quotes, to the present. Let's just back the bus up on that one. I know, you know, we have all been a part of a worship in a congregation on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night or whenever it may be, where this was front and center. Yeah. What's the purpose of worship? We remember what Jesus did for us, past tense. And then the sermon, hopefully, gives us some moral instruction, some uh, behavior modification, Mm -hmm. and a transmission of a vision for the present. Yeah, it's uh, another term I've heard, life transformation. Correct. Yeah, so we're going to... The purpose of the sermon is to point out what Jesus did, maybe even what kind of a life Jesus lived so that we can follow his example. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then the sermon is primarily setting up Jesus as example, whether an example of piety, an example of moral rectitude, whatever it may be, obedience, devotion, so forth and so on, love. Then the the clincher for the sermon has to be some sort of instruction for me and how to change my behavior so that in the future, I can cast my vision into that future to say, well, you're not who God wants you to be today, but if you apply yourself, Hmm. you can be that person tomorrow. Right. And it's a pursuit that is never realized. Hmm. How about that? It is very Aristotelian in the sense of we're moving from potentiality to actuality. Not biblical, but definitely Aristotelian. Yeah, and maybe not not even a moving target necessarily, but but one that's just on the edge of attainability. Correct. And I would argue Jesus is static. He's static historically. He's in the past tense. He's Mm -hmm. fixed back there. Mm -hmm. And he's fixed in the future, in the future tense. True. But he's not in the present tense, which is why worship is an act of remembering Christ. Hmm both of past remembrance, but also of future remembrance. Remember to whom you belong and remember to whom you go. Oh, and, you know, in a proper sense. Yes. Okay. That, that Jesus is very much static, and it's our responsibility as faithful Christians to look over our shoulder at what he did so that in the present tense moving into the future, we can make alterations, you know, as, as needed. Mileage may vary. Mm. But then Conker says, we must insist, however, that the worship of the church, like its theologies, its ethics, its creeds, and its confessions, begins with an action of God. Worship has its source in God, in certain redeeming historical acts in which God brought about his purposes. Yeah. Why do we worship in the present tense? Because of what God did in the past tense. That's correct. That's correct. Why do we confess our sins in the present tense? If we're already a baptized child of God, our sin is already forgiven. Because in the present tense, I continue to sin. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And yet, based on God's historical actions, I trust that my confession of failure will be met with, I forgive you, Jesus, much. (laughs) He died for that too. Yeah. So why do I have to keep confessing, though, if I know that? Mm, Because it's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of your relationship to your Heavenly Father which is cemented by Jesus's words and actions for you. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. do my children come and admit that they've done something wrong or inform on their siblings when they know I'm going to be upset? Mm-hmm. Because they trust that no matter how upset I or angry I might be, no matter how severe the discipline, they trust that I still love them and I will forgive them. Mm-hmm. So then why admit to me that they did something wrong or they were disobedient? Because my historical words and actions demonstrated that I love them and that ultimately forgiveness, not punishment, will rule our relationship. Yeah. But without those historical acts, they're not going to come and admit anything to me. Oh, that's true. I mean, I was a pathological liar growing up because my dad only had one response to anything that I did. Mm. Mm. (laughs) And it was violent. So I just learned how to be really sneaky, conniving, and lie really well. That's right. So maybe like in a pastoral setting or in a church setting, you would you would say to someone, um, they would say, well, am I baptized or was I baptized? That's how they say it, past tense, right? You say, yes. no, you are baptized, right? And you, exactly. and you bring into the present reality that remembrance of what happened, that yeah. yes, it happened in the past, you know, but it has, a, has that long standing ongoing effect of, of change of right. identity. And it's pers- a reality warp. 
really. Yeah, <laughs> that's what yeah. it's a theology of reality warp that the way that you perceive things is not the reality of things. Mm. And uh, and you know, as an example, then I was thinking about this as you were just talking, is maybe the reason that church bodies, congregations reject confession and absolution is because they conceive, they perceive God to be a God of wrath. Yeah. And the only thing holding back that fierce, that furious anger and punishment is Jesus. And if you don't believe Jesus is God, that he is the fullness of the image of God, as Paul says in Colossians, do you really want to stand up and confess your sins before the God who will crush you? In the right. same way that I smash a, a fly against my windshield when I'm driving down the highway at 80 miles an hour? Yeah. No, of course not. So what do you do? You just get rid of confession right. and absolution. And it's one of the reasons why the what right-hand column in our hymnal, the Declaration of Grace, is weaker, Correct. right? I mean, it's it's not that it's not true. It is, of course, true that it, mm-hmm. you know, we're declaring in a generic sense that God forgives sins. I get that. Um, Correct. But... It still can leave doubt then in the heart of people so that then yes. they've confessed and they rather than confess towards receiving forgiveness for that right. benefit, right? They're right. confessing, maybe hedging their bets or hoping that God mm-hmm. will forgive them, but never having heard it from the pastor, you know, it leaves them right. a little bit uh, a little bit wondering. Well, when you say to Anne, I love you, do you want her to, to quote poetry, love is like a red, red rose? Or do you want her to say, I love you back? When your children say, Dad, can you forgive me? Mm. They don't want you to go off on some excursus about the nature of absolution. <laughs> they want to hear the absolution. Yeah, exactly. They don't want you, you know, Dad, can you forgive me? Let's pray about that. Mm. Let me think or, about it. Well, you know Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, Ethan. Um, right. Anywho, can you forgive me, though? Right, exactly. I, I, it's not the world that I'm worried about. It's me. Right. This is why I have for all intents and purposes crossed out that right hand column yeah exactly yeah. i don't i don't believe this might be controversial but i simply don't believe that true absolution that the true gospel is a description of the gospel it is the gospel for right. you right well that's and that's really the heart of the matter you know is it is it jesus died for the sins of the world or is jesus dies for this for your sins right exactly now it's, both are true as luther says in the sacrament of the altar it's the four units mm-hmm that requires all hearts to believe. That's the true, that's the the nut of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You bite into that peach. What is the nut, the seed? It's the for you. Yeah. So this it's is first really. Article, dec- or not first article, I'm sorry, first order discourse. First yeah. order discourse is declaration. Second order discourse is description. And, and this the is The gospel what... is always, and by the way, the law is always first order discourse also. I have to think about that. In a, proclama- in a proclamatory sense. Right. I think this is why people are afraid of privately confessing to one another, mm-hmm, but absolutely to the pastor too. Right. Um, and and it just you can't live a life in in doubt, you know, of of forgiveness, mm-hmm. whether it's that your spouse forgave you or your parent forgave you, uh, or God forgave you. Well, I think it's just an absolute failure to understand what repentance is, <laughs> because what is repentance other than confessing back to God? This is what Doctor Nagel says: We simply confess to God what He first says to us: "You mm. are a sinner." Yes, I am a sinner. You are forgiven for Christ's sake. Amen. It's not, are you sorry for your sins? Do you have contrition? Uh, If you don't have full contrition, are you at least uh, sorry that you don't feel sorry for your sins? Attrition. This is the late medieval Roman Catholic penitential system. It's ridiculous. We we had a little reformation that rejected this understanding of repentance. And yet it snuck back in in the 16th century and was, quote unquote, repristinated. 
or Lutheranized or baptized. And it's been around our neck ever since. Hmm. And I wonder, again, I was talking with Pastor Finker about this yesterday, if why some of us sound so odd when we discuss confession and absolution is because we're not looking at it from the side of the penitent. We're looking at it at the side of the absolver. Right, exactly. We want to forgive sins. I'm looking at it from my side of the the confessional. That's why we love it so much, because we we love forgiving. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You come to me, Pastor. Because one, if you believe that God is living and active, he's not static. He's not an idea or a concept or a, a true living being who exists at the edges of our universe or some alternate <laughs> dimension, but he is literally actively engaged in creation as our God. The very fact that the person is coming to you to make this confession, even if it comes out sideways because they just don't know how to make a good confession, mm-hmm. that's the Holy Spirit, again, as John in the Gospel of John, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Mm-hmm. The very act of confession itself is an act of repentance. It's an act of contrition. It's an act of the Holy Spirit forcing out a confession. Because if we take Romans 7 seriously, I don't even understand my own actions. How could I possibly claim that on my own merits, my own strength or abilities, I can make a good confession? It's a rejection of Jesus. It's a denial of the cross. If I could make a confession on my own, I wouldn't need Jesus. (laughs) Well, and as to the article from Mr. Ernest Kinker, Right. Um, the, you know, this happens with confession and absolution, happens with all of worship, that we view it more, uh, what he's criticizing is viewing it as a transactional, you know, agreement with one another exactly. with Exactly. Right? We see it as a transaction. Right. Not, not as giving, but transaction. It's that, why are you repenting? Because of the threat of consequences. I repent because of the threat of consequence. Mm-hmm. Why are you nice to your neighbor? Because of the threat of consequence. Right. It's like that movie, The Purge, which I've never seen, but I've watched reviews of it. (laughs) I just, I have no desire, but I like the concept and uh, that once a year, all crime is legal. Yeah, that's right. And everyone just like, go crazy, do whatever you want to do. Get out of your system. You have to tell something the next morning. That if we, if there were no threat of consequence, there's a reason there is a fifth commandment. Mm. And it's not because God said, you know, just in case, I better cover the murderer thing. Just in case. I know you guys aren't murderous, but just in case. Yeah. No, God knows what's in our heart. And he goes, yeah, I better. Fifth commandment definitely comes right after parenting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's remarkable that murder comes before adultery. Hmm. <laughs> if you think about the context of a relationship. I'd re- <laughs> I mean, but, the commandments are structured hierarchically. Exactly. Under the first. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So if we understand repentance, as you said, transactionally, Hmm. we understand Christianity transactionally. And then we understand God as this toll booth operator. Oh, did you, did you want to go to the next phase of your Christian life? Did you want to get into heaven? Well, you got to pay the toll. Yeah. What's the toll? Well, are you sorry for your sin? Yes. Are you really sorry? Are you sincerely, heartily sorry? Hmm. Mm, What's the consequence if I tell you I'm not really that sorry about that one sin that I do? Yeah, right. Well, you'll go to hell. Then I am 100% sorry for that sin. Yeah. But God who sees the motives of our, the what is it? The God sees the, the motives and intentions of our heart. Uh, this is Jesus' whole problem with the religious leaders. <laughs> the religious are like, I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus goes, yeah, but I know your heart. Right. I know what's in your heart. You are murderous beyond comprehension. <laughs> and they go figure. What happened? Well, and you and I encounter this as pastors all the time, that the sweetest, most pious people in our congregations, when they do make a confession, have some really dark stuff that comes out. Right. 
and you it's that reality check again you're lulled into a false sense of security with these people she's so sweet and i love her and the congregation would just be so much worse off without her here and then she comes to your office and makes a confession and for an hour you just go what what yeah exactly (laughs) this is coming out of your mind you thought what you've done what Mm -hmm. and yet you're you forget that hypothetically speaking i'm not talking about anybody Mm -hmm. real or in my congregation but some 84 year old man comes to you and confesses all he's done in his life he's killed nazis He's been divorced twice. He tried cocaine in the 70s. He, his kids are estranged from him. He's had three come to Jesus moments and believes in aliens and all this other stuff. And, and yet you've never heard any of this come out of his mouth. You just know him as that guy who comes in. He's super friendly. He's always at Bible study. He's always volunteering to be on council. And then you go, oh, the reason you're always at church and you're so active and volunteer at church is you think that you're going to be thrown into hell because yeah. of your life. Conscience and is so, a tricky thing, isn't it? Exactly. And why are you coming to me? Because through the preaching, through the teaching, through the interpersonal relationship, you trust that I will receive your confession and I will pronounce absolution over you. Mm-hmm. And to your point then, the reason that they got rid of private confession at my congregation is because it used to be a requirement to come to the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. Meaning Saturday night, you had to go to the parsonage. You had to confess your sins to the pastor. You had to get a slip of paper, literally a receipt <laughs> that you then put in the offering plate when it went around on Sunday that said, or no, they collected, the ushers collected the the little communion card, the receipt sure. before the offering or during the offering that said, you get to go to church. And if the pastor said you couldn't go to communion for whatever reason, everybody in church knew mm-hmm. you did something wrong. And then it was the gossip mill and it was trying to figure out what the secret was or what you did. And now in the present tense, those old timers are petrified of private confession absolution Hmm. because it wasn't done in the way of the gospel. And I would argue it wasn't even done in the way of the law. Mm -hmm. It was just done in the way of transaction. What have you got? And back back to our first conversation, we can actually connect this in uh, with catechesis. Mm -hmm. That's often viewed as transaction as well, Right. That I come, right. I put in my yep. time, I, I memorize the, all the parts, I make the, this is what Jesus means to me, speech, or uh, whatever you use for examination at the end. Um, I yeah. checked off all the boxes, I've done, I've done my part, right. and now I somehow deserve, or whatever, I, I've, I've earned, I don't know, the Lord's Supper, right? right. Which is, it's often used that way. Exactly. Whereas exactly. catechesis should be gift, it should be in the way of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Like we love right. your word, <laughs> we love right. to learn it, and we love to learn it together and to communicate with each other and you know build each other up. Well, I like the imagery that that Luther scholars use that Luther wrote his catechism as a bridge into the worship of the church. Oh, yeah, and that the way that I explain it then when I introduce the catechism to the the very first week of confirmation is this is a bridge into worship, and what we have done because we're selfish, we're sinful, is we burn that bridge. Mm. And so really what confirmation is, is that you and I are going to build this bridge together. And that when we're done, you can burn it again if you want, Mm. or you can go back and forth over that bridge the rest of your life. Yeah. And it's not that American evangelical cross across the divide of, you know, that picture of, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It's, It's a picture of the cross over this like Grand Canyon, but the canyon is hell and the world is behind them and heaven is on the other side of the canyon. 
and you have to walk across the cross to get into uh, the heavenly kingdom. Kind of a very John Bunyan kind of thing. No, I was thinking like the, trying to go across that uh, chasm to get to the Holy Grail. Yeah, same. Actually, very similar to that. That in the Last Crusade, it's a transparent bridge, versus what I'm talking about, which is just a metaphor <laughs> and, and an analogy that's helpful to to paint a picture for my children mm-hmm. of what my intent is with this this four year curriculum we call confirmation, which mm-hmm. is not only to teach you what this is for, but how this leads you into the worship of the church, because that's really what this is mm-hmm. all about. Yeah. And I don't want Bible study, confirmation, and worship to be three individuated things, three individuated no. practices, but rather one whole. Almost like, I don't know, the Bible lays out the Trinity or how Paul lays out the human being or, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like, we just, we do it. It's good to work in threes. But um, nonetheless, this is what Canker, uh, uh, I just want to say Canker, Conquer, Conquer? I don't oh, know. It's German. It's conquer. good, Canker. That's close enough. Canker, conquer. You choose. Just choose one and stick with it. Yeah. So this is what he's after, is that the Protestant worship is essentially remembering Jesus and with the Lord's Supper. What's the, what are the, what's the whole, what's the high point or what's the point of emphasis for Protestants with, in the Lord's, in the words <laughs> of institution? Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Exactly. We're remembering yeah. Jesus and the purpose of the Christian life and education and Bible study and the sermon is moral instruction and, hey, what's your vision? Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself as a Christian in relation to God in the present tense, going to the future? So, Conquer says, we have to insist the worship of the church begins with God, its sources in God, and it's grounded in his redeeming, key point here, redeeming historical acts that he has brought about for yeah. his purposes. Yeah. It's here, so next paragraph. Here, several matters must be given full consideration. First, any glorifying of God is out of the question if one supposes that God has little glory. Huh. It's when I was little, we went on a, a field trip to the Science Museum in Minnesota, and they had this exhibit where you pedaled a bike and it generated electricity. Oh yeah, and there were there was a light bulb, and then a radio, and then a TV. And the harder you pedaled, the faster you pedaled, the more energy you generated. The the then the TV would come on, right? Oh, got it. This is what this reminds me of. Yeah, it's like the hotel in Scandinavia. I can't remember which country, but they they give you a discount off your bill based off of how many pedal miles you put in that's right that's right <laughs> that god has such little glory that we have to get on our bike our, our pious bike uh-huh. and pedal as hard as we can to live the christian life to pump up his glory and make him yeah. shine jesus shine or yeah hire the, the spectacular worship team right that's right hold your finger up and then sing jesus is this little light of mine for many people today the psalmist's conviction great art thou and greatly to be praised is a dead letter hmm. If one has a puny and inadequate conception of God, one will show himself of little faith, both in worship and in daily obedience. If the triune God is a mathematical formula or a dry abstraction, there will be little purpose to worship. If one pictures God as some ancient tyrant or senile father existing somewhere in the heavens, this God will be totally unworthy of one's devotion, which we were just talking about. Such a God is in no sense real, or one's idea of God has never grown up. Were we to expand our conception of God to the dimensions of St. Augustine's or Luther's God, we would be both constant in praise and steadfast in yeah. life. So it's one of the challenges uh, for those of us who are um, confident, I would say is the right word, to, uh, with the church's historic liturgy or the hymns mm-hmm. that we've received, um, or even uh, the lectionary, the readings that we use, that right. 
it's it's not a slavish or dogmatic assertion. It's really just um, a reality that we believe that God's word will have its effect, right? That it, exactly it, it, that He will bring about His glory amongst us, not by our effort or strength, but by His own. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, here we go again. Um, in the gym, we have a saying: "Humble yourself, or you will be humbled." Oh, yeah. That if you come in all proud and puffed up and full of yourself, it'll be you know zero minus five minutes before that's knocked out of you somehow, right? Or eventually it will be. Likewise, biblically speaking, humble yourself before the Lord. Meaning, when you come before the throne of God, when you become when you come before the glory of God, which is Jesus crucified, do you come humbled? In the sense of, I can't believe that you did that for me. Or do you come in this transactional way of, hey, what do you got to offer me? Because here's what I have to offer you. Yeah. Which I would argue is the exact opposite. Humility, which affects things like prayer, for example. When you pray, do you only pray for yourself or do you think first to pray for others? Look at the litany, for example, Mm. in the Lutheran service book. The litany is primarily us praying for others, not ourselves. Right. Yeah. And... This is why Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way, our Father, in the plural, the psalmist. He focuses on himself in relation to the consequence of sin, for example. But then when he prays for God to rescue and redeem him, he prays that God would rescue and redeem his people. Mm-hmm. He makes that turn, that humility, when you are humbled, literally to be made of no importance or to see yourself as being of no more or less important than anybody else, which is the root definition of humility or humbled. You don't look at yourself and say, what's in this for me? What don't I have yet? Or what can I still get? And I will praise God. I will pump up God's glory dependent upon what I lack or what I receive. But instead, in humility, humbled, that is a life of repentance. That is a life that looks at God and says, I can't believe you've done this for me. Yeah. Or in the Magnificat, I think we're coming up to that, actually. In the Magnificat, where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, because why? Well, look at me. Who am I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you choose me to be the mother of God. That's yeah. absurd. Yeah. And yet here I am. And what can I do other than simply sing? Praise right. God. I think we can see if we um, look around, if we have some knowledge of the churches, maybe even that we grew up in, the mm-hmm. effect of that like highly man-centered, experience-centered, you know, mm-hmm. life transformation um, sort of way of approaching worship. I mean, I grew up. Uh, around it was around me and it was it was in our congregation and it had a devastating effect because sure. man was trying to find glory in them in himself ultimately and uh, it wasn't a, conf- a quiet confidence in god and his word do you think that's why we often go to such ex- lengths to make sure the church is decorated in such a way that makes us feel proud hmm when we walk in or proud to invite our friends and family to visit church with us yeah that and i use my own congregation as an example where mm-hmm. it's a small intimate building as you've seen mm-hmm. it's i'm a minimalist so therefore pastorally i do not like a lot of clutter mm-hmm. um i don't really like anything that gets in the way of you being able to focus on christ and him crucified for you while you're yeah. there yeah and so it's it's a i wouldn't say we, we're spartan no not our, at all not in at our all. interior decorating choices but yet it's a very simple congregation. It's a very simple building. And so we have a very simple aesthetic. You do have a high altar, though, and a you know, kind of traditional German kind of thing. Right, the 1896 the, the, altar. Yeah, the, the, the wooden castle. hand-carved wooden <laughs> altar and pulpit and pews. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. then you'll notice because of the sparsity of decorations, that altar and the pulpit stand out. Yeah, 
Well, and the, so. didn't you have a Christ statue above? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, we have the resurrected Jesus, the giant Jesus, and then below Jesus, I have the, the oh, crucifix. Right. With but the they stand out because it's dark wood, and so the focus yes. really becomes on Christ and exactly. the icons there. Versus other, and I'm not judging any congregation. Trust me, I'm not. I'm, I'm just asking the question for the sake of, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. But yet there are some congregations I go into and I think to myself personally, and this is my own prejudice and I repent of it, I'm sorry, but I look around and go, this is too busy. There's way too much stuff going on in here. And it seems like they've put way too much effort into making this look pretty. Yeah. Like the the Rococo or whatever, the Italian Baroque yeah. style. You know, it's, it's super ornate uh, and it's beautiful right. in its own way. Um, but but there's a lack of centrality around you know the right. font and the altar. Yeah, and the pulpit. right. Well, yeah. especially in congregations with freestanding altars, lots of plants, lots of lights, <laughs> lots of banners, mm-hmm. just lots of everything. Lots of books and and uh, fill out our guest book and fill out a communion card and the the pew and then you have the bulletins are stuffed full of stuff. They're like you know, and then it all falls out all over the place. And and I'm just is. Is that our attempt to make it more meaningful, for lack of a better word? That well, more user-friendly. Yeah, so, more user-friendly. We're worshiping God, and it should be big. It should be special. Mm-hmm. When people walk in here, they should know we're worshiping God. But is the emphasis on us yeah. to the detriment of... where's? Because I, I point this out because I was in a congregation a couple of weeks ago where this happened. And I looked around and was like, where's Jesus? <laughs> and... I'm, and I'm not kidding. Again, not making a judgment call. It's just one of those things that I do. I, I, walked, I walked through the entire church. There was not one corpus anywhere in the church. Right. There was I'm... no crucifix with Jesus on anywhere in the church. There was one crucifix in the sanctuary mm-hmm. that was backlit by blue neon. Cool. And yeah, it was LED lights. It was, you know, and um, that was it. That was the only cross in the worship space. And then when you went out into the nave and the narthex, there were no crosses. And as I walked around, there were paintings and so forth, but there were no there was no Jesus crucified on a cross anywhere in the building. Yeah. And so I was asking, I was talking with the head elder about that and asking, where's your, you know, do you guys have any Jesus is on a cross? And he goes, we hope that the next guy we call will, uh, will say something about that. We'll do something about that because uh, we still have a, a contingent in the church that doesn't want that. And so I said, why, you know, why, why is that? Why right. do you think that is? Because he rose from the dead, right? He's no longer in the grave. He's never. He's no longer crucified. He's like, <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's very Catholic. Yeah. yeah, it's very Catholic. Well, there's that too. And um, and I like having those conversations because I really do genuinely want to know how you get to this point. Mm-hmm. Whether you walk into my congregation, and go, wow, so sparse and Spartan in here, and you make it seems like Jesus is everywhere, versus another congregation where you go, well, it's really well decorated and it's a large space, and obviously you put a lot of thought and effort into decorating it and and making it appealing. Why? Yeah. Like, what's the motive? I, I I'm more interested in the why rather than the what and the how, as we've talked mm, about in past podcasts. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder how that affects our our understanding of worship. Yeah. That we walk in and go, this isn't a very pretty space. <laughs> As if that has anything to do with the worship of God. Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about this yesterday too of my organist had shoulder surgery and my backup organists may both be unavailable for Lent. Oh no. Which pastorally makes me go into a full throttle panic. <laughs> that And then I thought, well, wait a minute. The church, the church survived for thousands of years without any musical accompaniment mm-hmm. at various times and places to the present tense. Right. What if I just purposefully this Lent said we're not going to have musical accompaniment? We're going to sing everything a cappella, and we're going to learn how to chant finally. Um, what would that do? I don't know. 
We'll see. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We may actually find out if my organist isn't ready to go. Yeah. We'll figure but it out. Even, I, we, even we did that, that actually for a period. Uh, and uh, it actually went pretty well. We did it for almost a month. Right. It was right. just it just getting over the hurdle of mm -hmm. uh, the apprehension, really. Right. Yeah. Well, because how many congregations have ever had to go any significant length of time without musical accompaniment in some mm -hmm. way, shape, or form? That's right. It's almost you, it's almost unheard of in the United States. Yeah. And yet, if we take away musical accompaniment, that doesn't tarnish or somehow lessen worship. Mm -mm. But we think it does. I think it does. Uh, if my or I've said far and wide, if my organist dies, I'm leaving, because I don't know if I could be the pastor of this church if my organist died. Hmm. Because the way from her just the last ten years, that the way she plays the music of the organ is in my head. Oh, I gotcha. It's the music of my faith. Yep. You know, and I didn't get I didn't receive that until I was 36 years old. Right. That's a big deal for me then. Mm -hmm. uh, it matters. Uh, and as I've talked about in other places. Uh, my children grew up. That's all. That's the only thing they've ever known. And therefore, when I ask them, what does heaven sound like? That's what they think heaven sounds like. Yeah. It sounds like Barb playing the organ. <laughs> what, what does thy strong word sound like? It sounds like Barb playing thy strong word on the organ. Right. And when we go to other churches, when we sing thy strong word or some other hymn, uh, God's own child, my kids always complain, they're playing it wrong, dad. I'm like, they're not playing it wrong. They're just playing it differently than Barb plays it. <laughs> exactly. Um, you got to expand but, the horizons a little bit. Right. It's, uh, but it, it goes to the heart of that transactional way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. here. This is what I expect. And if you don't do it the way that I expect it done, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's experience-based. Yeah. Right. And that there is a place for that conversation, obviously, especially in catechesis. Mm -hmm. But don't, don't fix your faith on that. It's sand. Yeah. So next. Secondly, then, he continues. Conquer continues. Secondly, we must remember that in its primary sense, worship is God's action in Christ. Period. Worship is God's action in Christ. That's what it is. That's what it always has been, always will be. Worship is God's action in Christ. Only secondarily is it man's action. We are continually reminded of this movement from God to man, even when the note of adoration emphasizes man's response to praise. The Magnificat declares, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. End quote. Mm -hmm. This is why we make such a big deal on this podcast, at least, about the distinction between sacrificial and sacramental worship. Right. Sacramental worship is essentially Christian. All other worship is sacrificial. It is not essentially Christian. Mm -hmm. This is why we have a problem with any form of worship, no matter what church banner it flies under, that makes worship primarily about our action, or as you said, our transaction with God, right. or... Fundamentally, it's sacrificial worship. What, when all the conversation is about our prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, mm -hmm. and rather Christ and his gifts. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's still sacrificial, even if there's no blood. <laughs> it's a bloodless sacrifice. Yeah. And as Rene Girard points out in his book, Violence of the Sacred, the reason we went with, blood, with bloodless sacrifice is because a couple thousand years ago, people got tired of killing each other. It was just <laughs> too much effort. It's like, can't we just kill a goat or... Maybe some grain. There's got to like be some, a better system. Right. There's got to be a better system. We have to go to war. We have to capture slaves. We got to bring them back. We got to yeah, sort them out. Something more sustainable. Right. <laughs> Ecological. Exactly. So let's just go with a bloodless form of worship. How, how about our time, money, and possessions? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, 
in some ways it's it's more valuable than our blood. How about that? Let's put mm. it that way. Mm. The many outside the Christian church, those who live apart from the faith relation to Jesus or to Christ, have reason to praise God for his creation and preservation. But the worship of the Christian is always because of Christ. It is, uh, I was reading uh, Dr. Luther on this, that uh, you can go out into the creation and see evidence of God. Romans 1 points this out. Mm -hmm. You can even praise and thank God within the context of creation to say God is active and at work in creation. He's active and moving in creation. And I I see evidence of God in the trees and the birds and the sky. Yeah. Thank God I'm alive. Thank God I'm alive. You can (laughs) praise God for creation. You can praise God for everything that you have and preserving your life to this point. Yeah. However. What happens when you don't? (laughs) So can a Muslim, a Buddhist, and any religious person. there's that. A theist. Yeah. Yes. But when the grizzly bear attacks your camp and you beg for absolution, mm-hmm. you'll get it, but it'll be at the resurrection. Yeah, that's it's right. Not, uh, in discussing Christian worship, what we're saying is that Christian worship is Christian because it is always because of Christ. Why do you have faith? Because of Christ. Why are you in this church? Because of Christ. Mm-hmm. Why does your pastor preach that way? Because of Christ. Why do you do that? Because of Christ. Why do you pray? Because of Christ. Yeah. How, why do you understand vocation that way? Because of Christ. Like, how, uh, I don't know if we talked about it on this podcast, but I've certainly had this conversation often enough with people that love should not be the foundation of your relationship with your wife and your kids. Because love is subjective. It's fleeting. It's a roller coaster. And because we're sinners... It's just ongoing hostility punctuated by moments of, of tenderness. Yeah, whether it's it's love as an emotional response or giving, or it's uh, more of a transactional, like I do these things to express my love, right? Correct. Uh, either way, versus <laughs> they come and go. What I would argue is that for Christians, the foundation of our marriage, the foundation of our parenting, the foundation of our neighborliness is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That as we are forgiven, we forgiven much, and that the fruit of faith is love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Ephesians 5, isn't it? But yet forgiveness of sin establishes the faith in us. Mm -hmm. And therefore, yes, I tell my children I love them, but that love is grounded in my confession of sin and my asking for for forgiveness in repentance and humility. To say to my son, and forgive my language, but I'm just going to say it, quote, I'm going to quote what I said to my 15-year-old, I'm a dad. Mm -hmm. And he said... What? Why? I go, I just, I, I know I'm a dad. And he goes, dad, there's a lot more parents that shittier than you. <laughs> yeah. And I said, thanks. I, I think, I, I think, thank you. But then I said, what I mean to say is, Owen, I know that I failed you a lot and I know I screw up and I know I do. And I say things that, um, don't allow me to think of myself as a good parent to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry. And I ask that you would forgive me. Yeah. They and most certainly are parents better than you. Oh, 100%. That provide 100%. more, that, that that are more gentle or caring or loving or right. whatever. This is why comparison is the thief of joy uh-huh. is a truth. <laughs> because if I compare myself to other parents, right. it's not too long before I find at least two or three that I say, oh, why can't I, why can't I have their temperament? Yeah. Why do I have to fly into such a rage? It's the littlest things. Why am I so crazy? Hmm. And the answer is because you're a sinner. So just ask your kids for forgiveness. <laughs> Admit that you're a sinner. So that when they grow up, one, they don't hate you or become estranged from you. And two, maybe when they become parents themselves, the good Lord will be kind to them and and remind them, hey, remember how your mom and dad rooted their parenting in confession and absolution? Maybe 
that's not such a bad path to take. Yeah. I mean, there is a place for judgment, right? A self-evaluation, oh, a self-criticism of yourself, yeah, of your course. parenting, for correction, right? And right. And, uh, and also for repentance, of course. Um, for the sake well, of forgiveness. As we were saying in relation to my God's the only true God, and if you don't believe in my God, you're going to go to hell and that kind of smug confidence. Mm -hmm. To believe that I'm right because I'm an adult. <laughs> I I grew up abused. I have no template to use for being a parent other than the, the wrong kind of template. Right. So I've had to basically work from scratch most of my adult life gathering information from different sources on how to be a parent. Yeah. You know what not to do. <laughs> exactly. I know. Exactly. I've got that covered. And yet when I'm not under control of myself, mm -hmm. I will default to the way that I was raised. Of course. I, I would not lay a hand on my children the way that my dad beat on me. However, when I yell it's and close. I use, and I use the voice and the voice of Moses comes out of my voice box. Mm -hmm. I don't need to lay hands on my children. Mm -hmm. They're terrified of me when I go mm -hmm. into that. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that I'm twice as big as them, I'm a giant, mm -hmm. they see me training in martial arts, so they know I can snap their neck <laughs> and end it at any moment. All of that is compounded by the fact that even though they know I would never do that, mm -hmm. it's still there as a fear, and it's a very real fear for them. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I can say I love them, but that fear will remain. But if I strip myself naked, so to speak, and say... I am not a good parent and here's why. Please forgive me for the things that I did or said today that hurt you or caused you to question my love for you or caused you to doubt yourself, whatever it may be. Forgive me for that. And they forgive me. And then they confess to me and I forgive them. Yeah. We don't do it all the time because we're sinners. But in my quiet moments, that's what I often think about. Because I have five kids, as you know, being the parent of many children, mm -hmm. you don't get a lot of quiet moments. And no. those quiet moments are often kind of prefaced with, wait, I'm alone and there's no kids. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then you start thinking about your kids. And at least for me, that's where I go is to self-reflect and be analytical of myself, right. self-critical. Right. And likewise, as a pastor, I'm always engaged in that inner dialogue and in, or yeah, inner dialogue and the external dialogue with the congregation of why are we doing this? Like we're doing, we're going through the liturgy and Bible study for Lent. Right. Well, that and that's what I was talking about uh, in terms of judgment in, in a corporate sense. You, there is a way that you can reflect upon the life of the congregation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and and for lack of a better word, in kind of a judgy way, yeah. you know. But it needs to be self-reflective, not well. Look at what we're doing in comparison to them. Look at how much exactly. better we are than them. Or or if you go to a congregation or you have caused that you moved to a new area and you didn't establish the church first, and now right. you're looking, it is right to say. You know, are they proclaiming Christ to me? Do I receive right. his gifts? Right. You know, are my sins forgiven? You know, right. Is that at the center, heart and center of what they're doing here? Not not evaluating, saying, well, do I like organ or not? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, which might help, but it isn't, right. it isn't the main thing. And in some instances, it, as I say, when the backup organist comes in, doesn't play regularly, makes mistakes, mm. someone complains, I ask the question, as you just pointed out. Don't focus on the mistakes that the organist is making. Focus on the fact that we're all together in faith to worship Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that she's a gift. Yeah. And yeah. whether she whether what she does is aesthetically pleasing to you or not is immaterial. Right. Flawed and imperfect. Just like our and, congregation. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. maybe the fact that the organist does make those mistakes is a great opportunity to remind ourselves this isn't this isn't performance art. Mm -mm. This isn't dinner theater. Mm -hmm. We're not professionals here. 
yeah. but rather what do we come why are we here in the first place yeah so, what, what's the purpose of our being here so that's a, is that's it to a, put on a show for god to be like ta-da <laughs> right that's then, cor- of course we should run the organist out for making mistakes that's a corporate humility is what we would say so, yes so, exactly and and uh, you know and with humility comes contentment that's the other aspect of that right for sure that for you sure. can I say so. look i know we don't do everything right i know we have struggles etc mm-hmm. etc but look Here's do we Christ. have Christ? Yeah, exactly. Here's do Christ. we have Christ? And, do we have Christ front and center? And do we sing as well as? No, of course not. You know, isn't right. it, you know, do we have all the right linens or vestments or whatever? Right. Whatever right is, well, I, I don't know. See, whatever the benefit that you and I have though is that we've been to higher things conferences where a thousand people are singing. Yeah, I know. With a full with the full <sighs> brass orchestra, the full string orchestra, Pastor David Kind on timpani, uh, Lemkers on the organ, like an octopus, and we stop singing. And just mm-hmm. look at each other because we know this is a special moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you need to appreciate this because this, like, this is not going to happen too often. Yeah. And then you go back to your congregation and it's a complete letdown. Yeah, in a way. Not, and, I, and not in a pejorative sense. I mean, letdown in the sense of I just sang uh, Mighty Fortress with a thousand people right. and a full orchestra right. and a full choir. Right. You can't top that. No. No. You, can't re- you can't replicate that at your congregation, but you can sing the same hymn. So to to canker or canker or yeah. whatever you want to say to his point, yeah. you can see the danger of that becoming man centered, right? Exactly. And experience based. You're know, like, yeah, it, yeah, our worship isn't. It is experience. Right. <laughs> we can't we can't disconnect the fact that we have an experience. Right. But the experience isn't necessarily reflective of the truth. Right? Correct. Mm-hmm. In some sense, the the worship that we engage in at a higher things conference is like a feeder you know experience mm-hmm. it, it feeds you back into the congregation to say we don't have a chris lemker on the organ or we don't have a full brass orchestra we don't have a timpani mm-hmm. we don't even have an organ maybe yeah. but we can sing mighty fortress together that's right and i think we it's can... sublime in its own way i mean acapella oh, singing i think so too if, if you haven't done it um to just well we do this at higher things as well actually uh in yeah. the evening with compline you know mm-hmm. we'll sing we'll sing a hymn acapella in a smaller group in a dorm room and it, it's yes. and it's its own kind of uh, sublime experience. Well, you know? this is the point in in I was I can't remember who I was listening to in a lecture talk about how in modern American culture we're afraid to be alone with our thoughts and emotions, and that's why we're mm-hmm. always occupying ourselves with music or podcasts or videos. We can't just sit still, even right. in the car. Right. We can't be alone in the car in silence. And what I'll do every once in a while is I won't include a distribution hymn during uh, the Lord's Supper, okay. so there's silence during the distribution. So all you hear is feet the wood creaking under their feet and the voice of the pastor over and over this and over the, over and yeah. over again because <clears throat> excuse me that silence makes people uncomfortable i've, I've asked that question does it of make you uncomfortable that there's no noise and they all say yes because we don't know what to do yeah we can thank radio for that right and when we're afraid of being alone with our own thoughts and emotions for example and even collectively, when we're afraid to be alone with each other in a congregation, when there's no music to distract us, or there's that moment, that five mo- minutes, 15, 20 minutes during the distribution, where we're not doing anything. We're just sitting there in silence, mm. staring at our shoes, waiting for it to end. That's the time that you think. That's the time when you can appreciate the silence. Yeah, You can appreciate the absence of the noise. Uh, you and I have talked about this. Others have talked about it. When you take the Alleluia's out for Lent. Mm, yeah. The, the years that I have not done that, and I've followed Dr. Luther and the Reformers in doubling down on the Alleluia's during Lent, it's 
fantastic. It's phenomenal. It's awesome. We sing extra hallelujahs. But the years, and even I, in my anti-pietistic bent, <laughs> have, to, have to admit that when you take the hallelujahs out during Lent and then you sing them Easter morning, yeah. there is power behind that. Yeah, there is. There is that, there, especially the Gloria. Yeah, it's a wonderful practice. And yet, the reason that I go back and forth is it's not the thing. No. And I want to remind my congregation, taking out the Gloria doesn't make you better as a Christian. It doesn't improve the worship one way or the other. It's not about us being like, we got it, God. Because we are, we're remembering yeah. a historical event. But as I remind my congregation, you know he's not actually dead. <laughs> we don't have to pretend he's dead. But rather, as a practice of piety, this is a healthy, helpful thing to do. Right. That's right. So then to go back on what Kinker says, the worship of the Christian is always because of Christ. And therefore, whether you sing hallelujahs or don't sing hallelujahs, whether you have silence during the distribution or not, if you, whatever it might be, is it because of Christ or not? Mm. And yeah, we can go off on tangents and justify anything we do in church right. by saying, no, we're doing it for Jesus. Just like we can justify anything by saying it's for the kids. Right. But the question isn't, is it because of Jesus, but rather why? Yeah. In discussing, Kinker continues, in discussing Christian worship then, we do not ask what worship is in general, quite apart from God's disclosure in the events described in the prophetic and apostolic scriptures. That's a thick sentence. Yeah. In discussing Christian worship then, we do not ask what worship is in general, which we were just enumerating, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. quite apart from God's disclosure in the events. Okay, so there you go. Yeah. So correct me if I'm, I'm not interpreting this correctly. What Kinker's pointing out is when we talk about Christian worship, we don't really want to talk about what we're doing or what it is, but rather what has God basically published in Scripture that's described in the prophetic and apostolic Scriptures that informs our worship. Yeah, our, our worship is, uh, we've talked about this before, I think, a pattern of the Christian life, you know, from yeah. life to, or from death, well, birth to death to life, right, if you like, right. death and resurrection, and then also... Right. It's a pattern of the history of Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I mean, we, where do we end up? We end up uh, at manna, you know, at the mm -hmm. Passover. Right. Um, so it, so then it obviously it copies the church year, which also mimics, you know, the life right. of the church or the history of the church. So, yeah, it all it's a reflection there. And that it's not prescribed, but <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but that's our story. Right. Uh, so if we want to remember anything, we need to remember mm -hmm. Christ and how he's at the center of the story from beginning to end, right? right? Well, and we discussed this in the introduction in the adult Bible study on liturgy. Mm -hmm. Divine service setting three is what we're going through, historical liturgy. And just the beginning statement, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the, the sign of the cross there. Mm -hmm. And asking, one, why don't we start off by declaring we make our beginning in the name of oh, yeah. right. versus just declaring in the name of. Second, why do we make the sign of the cross at that invocation? Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, we spent an hour and we never made it past the invocation. Right. Because we ended up talking about sacrifice and Roman Catholic, the mass and so forth. But getting to the heart of why the liturgy, because it's the liturgy of the baptized. Yeah. That the liturgy is for the baptized, which is why in the early church, those who were not were made to leave mm -hmm. when you arrived at the service of the sacrament. Right. And they were allowed back in at the conclusion of that, which is the ironic blessing. Mm -hmm. that this is specifically for the baptized. The service of the word is for anybody. It's the right. proclamation of Christ for you, crucified for the sin of the world. So right. anyone from the world can come into church and hear the service, be a part of the service of the word. However, during the service of the sacrament, 
that is specifically just for the baptized. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the whole purpose, if you use the historical liturgy, is because you are baptized. That mm-hmm. is the historical precedent. Yeah. That's your entry into the into service. If we have exactly. a baptism, it's the first thing we do. Right. Exactly. Right. At a service. So, like you just said then, it is the service. It is God-esteemed, God-esteemed. It is God's service to us. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it is Christ-focused, Christ-centered, Christ-founded. And where the rubber meets the road for us as Christians then is baptism. Yeah. Because as you said, we come in, hey, I'm dead, but I'm alive in Christ. Right. And so the purpose of our, the liturgy, if it's grounded in, as as uh, he says, in what God has revealed, disclosed to us through the prophetic and apostolic scriptures, the liturgy itself is death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And if it's not death and resurrection, if it's you're kind of alive, but we can make you better so that you're more alive, <laughs> kind of like the the one billion dollar man yeah, to up, right. you know to update for inflation, mm-hmm. that's not Christ focused worship. No. The purpose of the Christian life is not self-improvement. Yeah, to die in Christ and rise with him. To die and rise again. To crucify the old Adam through daily contrition and repentance. Mm -hmm. Within the context of vocation, by the way. It's interesting. I have a funeral tomorrow. And what do we do there? We process in to the church with the deceased, Mm -hmm. confessing their baptism, that they are alive in Christ. Exactly. And uh, where is that? How how is that informed by the prophetic and apostolic scriptures? This is what Jesus says to caskets right. when they when when he and encounters there it. There we go again. That in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Oh yeah, yeah. This person is not dead. He's asleep. <laughs> yeah. He's like maybe there's something more to reality than just what your five senses can comprehend. Yeah, and maybe if you have trouble, close your eyes. That's not metaphor. That's not abstraction. Right. That's right. reality. Well, and if it is a metaphor and an abstraction, why bother? Yeah, exactly. And, oh. and actually, if it is a metaphor, then I do believe, I do think, we should go out of our way to to make the congregation and the service and the whole ritual itself huge. Oh, yeah. Like grander than grand, like a spectacle. Right. Because if it is a metaphor, then the power of the service is the power of the symbol. Yeah. The power of the images. How provocative it is, right? Right. How provocative versus if it's the power, if God is real and God's word is Jesus Christ and that word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and that it goes out and does not return empty-handed to Mm -hmm. him. All I got to do is my, what I'm sent to do as a messenger of the gospel, which is he's not asleep. Right. Or I'm sorry, he's not dead. He's asleep. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Mm-hmm. Is means is. I don't care if you believe it, like yeah. it, doesn't matter. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And we've talked about this in the past. I had to do a funeral. I was asked to do a funeral by a family at the funeral home mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. The, in their words, they didn't, they weren't comfortable having a church funeral. Okay. And this is a man who had been alienated from the church for decades. And when yeah, I became right. pastor and we visited, he came back. Okay. And his wife and he died within three months of each other. Mm. His wife first, she was devout. She had her hymns written out. She had the Bible verses. She wanted everything. She knew her confirmation verses. Right. That was a church funeral. He was more of a, can you cremate me and throw my ashes over into my favorite fishing hole mm. kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So he was buried with fishing rods and he had a fishing hat on. <laughs> so okay. you walk into the funeral home and the coffin's at the front of the, the room and all you see is the casket and fishing poles sticking up out of the casket. Yeah. Like some sort of voodoo doll. <laughs> and so what'd you do? Put a crucifix in the in the casket? Uh, I brought one with me. 
<laughs> and I put it on the podium in front go. of me while I preached. There you go. And it was, and I bring this up because I realized in that moment that an overwhelming number of the people that were at that funeral were not even Christians. And rather than preach the sermon that I had written, which was a very safe sermon. Of course. I folded it up, I put it away, and I ripped. I just let it rip like a chainsaw. I preached I preached the, the, the resurrection and the life as if everybody in the room was a pagan who needed converting. Yep. And on the neighborly side of things, <laughs> from that, I had people come to church the following week yeah. um, because of what I, because of the sermon. And that's what woke me up to the fact that I was preaching differently at ser- at funerals than I was every Sunday. Yeah. I know I've caught myself with that too in the past. Thinking that, oh, these are Christians. I preach to them one way nope. and these aren't Christians. So I'm going to preach to them a different way. And we talked about this in the Walther podcast. I was going to say, there's Walther. Preach Always. for a conversion. Meaning <laughs> every, every Christian is an old Adam. As Dr. Luther says, the old Adam hangs around our neck until he mm-hmm. is buried and dead. Yeah. And who knows what happened that week and what right. shame and despair and, and unbelief they fell into. 100%. Yep. So rather than treat Christians one way and non-Christians a different way, mm-hmm. just say, you all need Christ. <laughs> you all need Jesus. <laughs> nice. And not worry about, again, it's it's the Holy Spirit who does, as Walter and Dr. Luther point out, it's the Holy Spirit who d- divides the law and gospel. Right. It's the Holy Spirit who decides. And I could... Get, you know, blunt force trauma to the head, become a gospel reductionist and only try and preach the gospel. Mm. And yet it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit will say, eh, not no. doing it. No, because that's not the full revelation of Christ. No, because Dolores right. over there needs some law this week. And George over there, he needs the gospel this week. And this, you know, the kid up front, he needs some more gospel. Right. And that, but she needs to repent. And I'll walk out of the pulpit all puffed up because I didn't preach the law this week. And I only gave him sweet comfort. And then at coffee after church, have people come up to me complaining about how harsh the sermon was. Right. And the only explanation, biblically, doctrinally speaking, is the Holy Spirit took my words and went, mm, we're going to go a different way. Yeah. What do you call that? The backspin of the gospel, right? That's the backspin of the gospel. Exactly. Yeah. That it can come back actually to accuse you again. Right. That in your unbelief. In the end, antinomianism or, or trying to substitute the law for your own personal law or being autonomian, inventing mm-hmm. your own laws to preach or just being you know a gospel only preacher. Those who say, well, I'll only preach the gospel. I don't preach law. That's an impossible heresy, actually, yeah. <laughs> because you cool. can say, you can set out as a pastor to not preach the law or deny that the law applies to Christians. The Holy Spirit is still going to use your words right. any way he sees fit. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Yeah. He blows yeah. as the wind blows. And you have no control over how that's heard or received. And he has an ally in, in the sense that he, uh, not the full revelation of God's mm-hmm. law, but but certainly a great deal of it is written in our hearts, right? Exactly. That our heart excuses or accuses us before the throne of God, yep. as Paul says in Romans 8. Right. You can't. The whole reason that you would not want to preach the law as a pastor is because you actually hate the law. Mm-hmm. But if you hate the law, you hate God's word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's what God's word is, God's word of law. Yeah, and you can't hate the law. Uh, and love the gospel. I mean, in well, a sense. yeah, exactly. Because th- that would be like saying, "I like, I love Jesus in the morning, but I really don't like him after dinner." Yeah, I love Jesus' forgiveness, but I really don't like that part where he tells me I need to be forgiven. Right? Exactly. What? Exactly. <laughs> exactly, Pastor. I, the way you forgave us this morning, I, I wasn't ready for that forgiveness. That's okay. <laughs> right. God. Does, God doesn't stand on formality. No. You needed it. He gave it to you. That's right. Well, how do you know I need it? Well, are you a sinner? Well, of course I am. Then you need it. 
You touch yourself. You have flesh and blood, right? Right. In fact, you can't even ask the question. So this is the this gets to the root of it. You just pointed out. If you try and not preach the law, you can never ever use the word sinner, <laughs> because the very fact that you say the word sinner would right. imply that there's somewhere a savior or sin or or, or that they need saving. Right. Exactly. Or that they somehow need saving or forgiveness. Right. So the way to escape all that is just get rid of confession and absolution altogether. Yeah. Because then we never have to acknowledge the reality. You're a sinner. And ultimately, and we have to de- we have to deny every form of evil that we that of we course experience of we course yeah. we have to figure. Well, it's just a mistake. It's just an accident, right? Really, is genocide an accident? Is abortion an accident? <laughs> like, right. Right. are we really going to go there? Are we just going to acknowledge that there's a broader reality that you're trying to deny here, mm-hmm. and that the reason you're denying it is because you're super uncomfortable with the fact that you are not well who you perceive yourself to be, yeah. or your congregation is not what you want them to be. Well, that, and, and metaphorically re- speaking, they might be, but yeah. not in actual fact. And uh, for those playing along at home, the uh, reality is that every Christian congregation has all those sins that you say are a problem out there. Exactly. Uh, actually, they're a problem in here, too. <laughs> that's why you recognize them out there. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that stinks. It does, but it's the fact. I, I can't, if I don't know how to speak Cantonese, there's lots of stuff I'm going to miss in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if I don't know what sin is, mm-hmm. I might pass right over it and be like, oh, is that a sin? Yeah. <laughs> is that well, what that was? Yeah. I, I didn't know. Yeah. But if I look at you and go, Pastor Gillespie, you are a horrible sinner because of that thing you did. Mm. Well, how would you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you have personal experience with that sin? Mm-hmm. And that's when it gets sticky. Yeah. No, 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 no. I didn't. I, we're not here to confess my sins, Pastor Gillespie. We're here to talk about your sin. Yeah. Well, and I, I've, exp- I've experienced this with, with my children, you know. And they're oh, like, of course. Like, how did you know? How did you know I was doing that? Or how do you know it was wrong? It's like, uh, who do you think did it first? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's this is, hilarious. This is epigenetics here. <laughs> exactly. I saw that conversation with Annie the other night about epigenetics being the new mysticism. Yeah, it is a way of kind of it's throwing like, a lot non, of stuff under When the... I talk with friends who are non-Christians who accuse me of believing in fairy tales and fantasies, mm-hmm. and then they start talking about epigenetics to me, I'm like, <laughs> you know, you're you're basically just using different language to describe the same thing you just called a fantasy. Right, exactly. <laughs> For me. This, this thing we call hereditary or original sin, um, right. you can call epigenetics, and we mean Almost the same thing. Exactly. I'm like, yeah. Can I, when I go to court, can I blame my Viking ancestors for my behavior? Is uh-huh. that, can I be acquitted because uh-huh. of that? I just say epigenetics, dude. It's not my fault. We do it Genetic in the determinism. church. Adam and Eve. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I didn't, I didn't want to invade my neighbor's yard, but it was spring and that, that Viking genetics just started to pulse. Uh, I had to do it. I couldn't control myself. Right. No, that's nonsense. Yeah, right. So uh, Christian worship is inextricably bound up with God's revelation in Christ. In fact, our very existence redounds to his praise. Even as in Ephesians, we are told that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Yeah. Ephesians 1 verse 12. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love Ephesians. Mm. And it's, it's interesting. Not quite as, it's not quite as harsh as like First Corinthians. <laughs> no, it's not as harsh, but I think it scares us because it's almost entirely dedicated to election. That's <laughs> mm, true. Which is why I love it. As mm-hmm. you pointed out at the beginning of the podcast, I'm a big third a third article fan Yep, because adult convert. I read Ephesians. That was the first letter of the Bible I read when I was a missionary that when I got to the second chapter, by the time I got to the end of the second chapter, I was like, oh, this is the best book in the entire Bible. This yeah. is fantastic. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. <laughs> lest anyone should boast, but it's a gift. Uh-huh. 
and this by grace. It reminds me, I was watching this document, or I was watching, um, it's called Oliver Harper's Retrospective Reviews. It's a YouTube channel, Oliver Harper's Retrospective Reviews. And what he does is he goes back and he reviews old movies. A lot of them are just considered classics. And he he goes back and he reviews them in the present tense and goes, do they hold up? Why are they classics? And he also then goes into the making of the movie and and kind of the entirety of it, right? The behind the scenes stuff. So it's a fascinating, usually a 20 minute long segments, 30 minutes, depending. Mm -hmm. But he was covering Bruce Lee's game of death and Bruce Lee died before he could complete filming. And so it was an incomplete film, but that was also at the height of Bruce Lee's popularity. Hmm. And so what the filmmakers did is they took, so this is crazy. So they took excerpts from Enter the Dragon okay. and spliced them in. They put Bruce Lee's head on a on another actor's body in the sense of, and this is back in the 70s, remember? So they would kind of superimpose Bruce Lee's face yeah. onto the face of another actor. But it's the 70s, so it, it you can tell it's... It's right. It's a, the body and, and everything's moving, but the face is just stationary. He superimposed the, the the filmmaker superimposed Bruce Lee's face onto another body. They also used other actors that looked like Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. and then they tried to film in such a way that you only saw them from the back or from the side. But then there were some parts where they just apparently just gave up trying to hide the fact that it was somebody else. So they filmed them from the front. Then they rewrote the script later for like a, the the special edition director's cut. How did this even get released? Because he was dead and the people that owned the rights to the movie could do that. And it was the 70s. And there was the Hong Kong company that owned the rights to it that worked. I think it was with with Warner Brothers. The Hong Kong movie company was run by the Japanese, by the Yakuza, by the, or no, the Hong Kong mob. (laughs) Okay. The Hong Kong mob ran the entire film industry at that time. And a lot of people think the reason that Bruce Lee died is actually he was poisoned to death by... He was killed by the, these mobsters, the Hong Kong mafia, because he went independent. He came to the United States and he signed this big movie deal and broke from his production company in Hong Kong. And they think that's why it was retribution, basically, hmm. because they were making obviously a lot of money off of uh, Bruce Lee and his likeness and everything else. Right. Bruce Lee was like, who is the most popular person in the world right now? Like the most recognizable movie star, like Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Vin Diesel or somebody? Oh, I don't even know. Vin Diesel made the most money out of any actor in Hollywood last year. Really? Yeah. Just mind boggling. But Bruce Lee was like the Beatles. He was literally as popular as the Beatles in the in the mid 70s. So there's a lot of money and a lot of merchandise money. Hmm. And the, the so in Game of Death. Oh, you're not kidding. It was Vin Diesel. Yeah, that's I know it's shocking. I know I don't it just it can't wrap my head around it. Um, So anyways, um, what happened, though, is that the popularity of Bruce Lee, then it it gave birth to what was called Bruce exploitation, like black exploitation. So forth. Bruce exploitation is all these movies came out of Hong Kong and Hollywood that were capitalizing on Bruce Lee's popularity. So they would have movies that were like Enter the Dragon they would have the word dragon in them. They would have the you know, the main actor would look like Bruce Lee and act like Bruce Lee and even dress like Bruce Lee, uh, but be a cheap knockoff of Bruce Lee and so forth and so on. And the point being is that it wasn't the real thing, but people were so rabid for anything Bruce Lee that they were willing to pay for it, to buy it. Yeah. And then after the fact, um, Oliver Harper goes back in this retrospective review and he kind of goes through all of this that surrounded the game of death. And you can watch the movie. There is a Blu-ray edition of the movie that is made out of a lot of 
film that was spliced together and made into a whole. And yet you can't really enjoy it as a movie. You can enjoy it as a historical artifact, but not as a movie because there's such glaring things that stand out. Yeah. And similarly, then you see this in our worship where it's not the real thing, but it's kind of an exploitation of the real thing Yeah. that it, it seems like the real thing, but yet there's something that stands out that separates it and goes, and like I said, it's like walking around a church and not being able to find a crucifix hmm. and asking, it's a Christian church. It's a Lutheran church. Where's the crucifix? Where's Jesus? Yeah. And it's like, well, you don't need the crucifix in the worship space to, to worship. And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but... Right. But as we've talked about, uh, people, not everyone is fully literate, right? <laughs> not yeah, not fully literate. And if you're not faced up against it, is your mind ever set on mm-hmm. how does this sermon proclaim Christ? How does our, how does our, how do our hymns or songs proclaim Christ crucified? Yeah. I think about uh, contemporary worship songs that are ripped straight out of the Psalms, for example. They're straight up biblical uh, songs, and yet they could really be sung by anyone who's a deist. Because there's nothing specifically Christian about those songs. And to your point, if you are illiterate, Christian illiterate, let's say Christ illiterate, you can sing a lot of psalms Mm -hmm. and not know they're psalms of Christ or that they have anything to do with Jesus. So just saying we sing biblical songs in worship, we don't have to sing hymns. There are a lot of hymns that are not what I would consider Christian hymns. Right. I have the same critical conversation about hymnody as I do about any other kind of music, praise music. (laughs) spirituals, whatever. Right. I don't care what you call it. I don't care what the instrumentation is. What I care about is how does this preach Christ and him crucified? Right. Because again, it can be biblical, but that doesn't mean it necessarily points to Christ. Right. I could write a praise song about how God came to kill Moses in the middle of the night and Zifra cut off his foreskin and rubbed the blood on the bottoms of Moses's feet. That's biblical, but it doesn't make for a good worship song. Yeah. It's kind of uh, it's kind of gruesome. It's kind of gruesome. Might traumatize the kids if it's sung around the campfire. Yeah, yeah. but that's a criticism of the cross as well, as people say. It well, is, and that's what I mean in the sense of this Bruce exploitation movement of exploiting Bruce Lee mm-hmm. for his likeness to make money off of him or, or advance yourselves. Is how do we as as old Adams exploit Jesus mm-hmm. in order to perpetuate and benefit ourselves? Yeah, our piety, our worship, our devotion, our as you said, the transactional nature of our understanding of our relation to God. Mm-hmm. Is it really all about cashing checks, hmm. so to speak, metaphorically speaking? Yeah. And do we recognize the power of symbol to influence the way we think, the way we behave? All you have to do is watch pop culture yep. and to understand the, the power of symbol. Yeah. This is why every generation has their blonde-haired, bubblegum pop star, teen pop star. Hmm. It's, it's just cut and paste. It's too easy. It's the power symbol. So uh, we can end there. That's page. That's the top of page 12. We read through a couple paragraphs. It's a good place. So it's Worship and Word and Sacrament by Ernst B. Kenker. Let's see. Mm -hmm. Again, any shout outs for music this week? Any Uh, musical choices? What to listen to? Yeah. What are you listening to this week? Whoa. I got a lot of text messages and messages in general last week about... uh, the Lost in Vegas shout out and people cursing me for, because now they're addicted to watching Lost in Vegas and other things. I got I got two shout outs for music. Sleater Kenny. Oh yeah, so good. 
uh, Sleater Kenny, specifically their performance in Austin City Limits last year, mm-hmm. which you yeah. can get on YouTube. Phenomenal performance. Yeah, and especially if you're a fan album, of Portlandia right? yeah. and you only know Carrie from Portlandia mm-hmm. to, to, and this happened to me actually, is that I was, again, I went through, as I've said before in the podcast, when I was in college, it was Pantera, it was Megadeth, Metallica, that kind of stuff. My friends that listened to Sleater Kenny were all in the art program. They were the artsy fartsy Sleater oh, yeah. Kenny, Bauhaus, Morrissey, the Smiths kind of stuff. And I was like, Lach. so I only know Carrie from Portlandia. So I, I just randomly turn on Sleater Kenny and Aussie City Limits, and she's just shredding on the guitar, singing mm-hmm. in a voice that I yeah. would never expect to come out of her face. Yeah. And I was completely blown away. I'm like, I can't believe I missed this. This is yeah. phenomenal. Because she's so dry and flat. Yes. Affect on the show. And then. And yet when she sings, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't match up with that little body. Mm. So check out Sleater Kenny, especially live on us to see Olympics. Muse. This is my kid's favorite band. They love Muse. Love especially Muse. live. Again, same thing. Live. Muse is fantastic live. Mm-hmm. What would you what what genre would you categorize them in? Because they, um, they blend so many together. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty much progressive pop yeah that's a good way to say it so it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a pop rock with like a, a strong flair towards uh, overly dramatic <laughs> yeah say, yeah or operatic well, they are, almost they do qualify as a protest band they yeah, they're political true. for sure that's true um they mix together everything from trip hop to metal to pop to rock mm-hmm. but i love muse i love uh every they're phenomenal musicians in and of themselves um, and then I asked about comic books, and uh, by accident, uh, I'm actually uh, "quote unquote" reading Moon Knight right now, um, and I'm I'm going through the Jeff Lemire run, L E M I R E, Jeff Lemire's run on Moon Knight. Okay. Here's the other thing too: you can actually find digital comics on YouTube, <laughs> so that you don't have to buy them. So there is a channel on YouTube called just Digital Comics, and it's I think it's primarily Marvel comics. But uh, long runs, you can, there's the Avengers, there's Moon Knight, there's mm. Deadpool, there's X-Men, there's all kinds of different comic runs. And uh, they're, they're digital comics. So there's music, the, whoever puts them up there, either put music to accompany them. And it's actually really good music. It's super chill. It kind of sets the tone, the mood, and does a really good job. So I don't know if it's a professional musician who does it or what, but um, Moon Knight's fascinating because he is a superhero with split personalities. Okay. And he's not quite sure who he is. He has three different personalities, or he, he has three different personalities based on who he is pretending to be at the moment. Uh, one personality is a famous actor. Uh, one is a millionaire. One is a cab driver. And then there's the Moon Knight personality. And uh, Jeff Lemire plays with that a lot. Where you start off in the first um, the first uh, first uh, issue with him being in an institution in an asylum. Yeah. And being told that this is all his psychosis, his break from reality. And the whole comics run then is in, is exploring the nature of like, if you're a hero, but yet you have split personality disorder and you're not actually sure whether you are a hero or whether this is just a fantasy playing out in your head and you're one of these other personalities, but you can never be sure of who you actually are. How does that influence your decision making in the area of... Mm. hero and vigilant and it, within the broader universe of yeah. heroes yeah and actually moon knight is on the front burner conversation at marvel studios for either a tv show series on netflix um, because he does a lot with punisher actually in the punisher comics oh, okay. moon knight shows up because he's a street level hero like daredevil mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. punisher so forth 
And so there has been a lot of scuttlebutt about bringing Moon Knight to Netflix because the nature of the character, he has a split personality disorder. It doesn't really lend itself to an hour and a half movie, but you put it in a six or eight or 10 episode series where you can really flesh out the dynamics of this character and his interactions with the other characters within the the show, like Jessica Jones on Netflix. Right. Um, It could be fascinating. Fascinating. You know, that's the great thing about the Punisher series on Netflix is they took a really unique approach to the Punisher from the perspective of PTSD and him being a soldier. That's right. And and looking at his motives for wanting to become the Punisher, which the comics do in some runs, like Punisher Max, but by and large he's just this psychopathic vigilante antihero. Whereas the Netflix series really digs into his psychoses and mm. the root of that psychoses and how it plays itself out. And that's what I found interesting about the Punisher series on Netflix is how much of the series is devoted to just Frank Castle as a person. Yeah. No, it's and good. His, his engagement and they, with the world around him. And there's that sub character and his PTSD. And um, I just, I found it fascinating that well, they took that approach. You know, on the show, it develops in that, uh, in the way that therapy might help you. You know, yeah. a conversation might help you expose things that you had forgotten, you know, because right. of the psychosis. You know, as the show goes along, we learn more and more about his, you know, what happened. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and it, 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 you don't have to agree with his decisions. Mm-mm. And yet you understand why he makes the decisions he makes. Yeah. Which I, I, did, I appreciate. Speaking the, of comic books and TV, I did actually finish Happy <laughs> on Sci-Fi oh, did Channel. You? Yeah. And it's pretty raw. I don't know. It's appropriate. For it's adult. Children. It's 100% adult. Um but uh, really satisfying conclusion, actually. Okay, I, I, I gotta go back to that. I completely spaced on that. Thank you. Oh I'm yeah, no, that. I just finished it. I, I think it was the last episode was this week for season one. Okay. So it's uh, it's really remarkable dealing with the vocation of fatherhood. You know, it really is. But it is a hundred percent adult. Yeah, but also imagine, um, you know, the, the thing- is that on the Sci-Fi Channel? It is. I don't yeah. know how it's on Sci-Fi. Well, I don't either because they they air it before nine o'clock at night, and so they drop f bombs every once in a while. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not, but it, it actually, it also deals quite a bit with um, uh, the things that we create to deal with reality, the imaginary yes, figures. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and how those are like coping mechanisms mm-hmm. and some people would call it bipolar. Other people would just call it, this is how I deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. I have an imaginary character who I talk to and helps me right. through. You know? <laughs> who basically helps me make moral or immoral judgments. Generally moral, actually. Um, yeah. It's easier to listen, you know, to the magic unicorn than it is to listen to right. my own conscience, my own heart. Well, and to that point, it's an interesting character study. The original graphic novel is an interesting study, too, in the sense of where where is the place of morality within a nihilistic culture or a mm-hmm. nihilistic right. mindset? Mm-hmm. And are we all psychotic because of the prevailing nihilism in our society? Yeah. Does, that, does, does nihilism writ large contribute to a kind of collective psychoses yeah because he was and a cop and then he becomes a hitman right or he's, and, he's and a hitman on the show but yeah is that why thing you know the conversation about morals or ethics is that why it's so wishy-washy or so difficult to pin anyone down or anything down because culturally we're just so nihilistic right yeah there's it's, no there's no like there's no character on the show who we would say is like oh that's a model example I mean, yes. they're all they're all broken for, yes for sure messy mixed up immoral moral mixtures of people <laughs> yes yeah and then lastly i'm gonna give a shout out to my brother Stuart cooper uh he has a channel on youtube you can follow him on social media it's Stuart cooper films uh Stuart has spent he's a filmmaker he's also a jujitsu practitioner and if you're into jujitsu he also does stuff uh with tiger muay thai he did a kind of 10 part series on tiger muay thai in thailand and 
he does a great job of just documenting the philosophy of jujitsu. And uh, I just, I love his, I love what he does. They're short films. They're anywhere from three to 10 minutes. Um, but he's great at getting jujitsu practitioners to, to speak on the subject of jujitsu in a way that applies to all of life. Yeah. And so you don't really have to even practice the martial arts or be in the martial arts to appreciate the conversations that he records in these, these short films. Um, because like I said, it, it really is talking about how jujitsu has changed people's lives or how it applies to life in general. And actually what we were just talking about with happy is I think for myself anyways, one of the things that I'm, or a thing that I miss most is just the ability to dialogue with people about life in general and just find out what their philosophy is, their approach to life, their, how they engage reality and what it is that, that encourages them, excites them, what it is that discourages them, what depresses them. And one of the things I appreciate about Stuart's short films then is, like I said, it, it really is looking at jujitsu primarily as not a, a it's jujitsu isn't a vehicle for being a killer, learning how to be a trained killer and being able to start fights and end fights. Jujitsu is a way to make yourself, to improve your life, to improve yourself as a person, to make yourself a better person. That's ultimately the, the aim and the goal of jujitsu. Hmm. And again, in a secular, uh, righteous pagan however you want to say it neighborly sense i want to have that conversation because i do believe in a neighborly sense that's the overlap in our vocation as christians the overlap is in relation to my neighbor let us come together and reason together let us discuss mm -hmm. yeah. our philosophy and how we engage reality and for me as is explicitly clear the the way into that conversation for me for me to find a not a toxic tribalism but a healthy tribalism has been through jujitsu and muay thai and mm -hmm. the martial arts and also likewise it's been a healthy entry into the church for those people that i train with that aren't right yeah and we've talked church. about i think we've talked about it before on this show even that the that there's a there's an intimacy you have yes and, and it's all i think it's really react it's really a maybe a reaction to kind of the gnostic or kind of abstraction that we live oh, in our 100%. life and here you're like no this interaction is very physical it's very real <laughs> right well and it's even driven me as we've talked about on the podcast before to ask the question have we have we disembodied the church have we disembodied mm -hmm. our doctrine right. have we disembodied our worship because the physicality of jujitsu as you said is extremely intimate and it's a as one teacher said, when you roll with someone for five minutes, you know more about them than their spouse. Because you can't mask your emotions. You can't hide who you are as a person when you're under extreme physical duress. Right. And so there are things that you may be able to keep from your friends and family your whole life. But when you're on the mat and you're exposed like that and you're fighting against another human being who's trying to impose their will on you, whoever you are comes out and that that intimacy comes out without words often and it's physical and your reactions also kind of can kind of display that and i miss that in my other uh engagements with people i miss that in the church yeah. that lack of immediate consequence that lack of intimacy and especially as our society moves further and further into these little tribes where Everything is about idealism and enforcing mm -hmm. our ideas on each other. And this kind of parochialism that's captured our imagination where if you're not with me, then you are my enemy. What I, what I bring back into the church from my training is 
that Christianity is concrete and real. Our God is concrete and real. He locates himself in history and time for us in a specific way, in a specific place. And if we as Christians do not, for lack of a better term, embody that in the sense of, is our worship concrete real? Is our doctrine concrete real? Is is our, our understanding of the relation of baptism to vocation, is that concrete and real? If it becomes this abstraction, as you pointed out, do we flirt with Gnosticism? Mm. Do we flirt with a disembodied faith that disintegrates under stress? When it's put to the fire, does it disintegrate or is it sharpened? Yeah. Does iron sharpen iron? Where does it happen that it's sharpened? And I think this is where we in our vocation shouldn't shut ourselves off from the world, but as we've said before, be in the world, not of the world. Mm-hmm. That I participate in these activities and yet they are not my identity but rather they lend themselves towards cementing for me my identity as a baptized child of God. Right. And this is just one way that I put my old Adam to death mm-hmm. by hum- being humbled, by being taught respect and discipline, perseverance, yep. gratitude, uh, how to be encouraging and not negative, not to tear down, but to build up, yep. not to judge people based on what they look like or how they talk, but rather to judge them based on their character I learned all of that after years of trying to find it over there in that arena called jujitsu. Yeah. And that's why I like, I appreciate Stuart and I appreciate his films. So check that out. If you're interested, check out, like I said, the Sleater Kenny and Muse stuff, check out oh, yeah, digital Sleater. comics on uh, YouTube. If you're into that, check out Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's an intellectual. He's, he nails neo-Marxist postmodernism. He really is so hyper intelligent. He's a type of guy that even if you disagree with him, multiple listens, will force you to think yeah, <laughs> and force you to, to make conclusions. Times. Yeah, And I think for those of us who, <clears throat> I'm a creative who's conservative. Mm-hmm. And that's why I find Jordan Peterson so helpful because I'm a creative, so I do lean towards certain liberal causes or liberal sure. standpoints or liberal ideas. And yet I'm conservative theologically. <laughs> um, and as I get older, I become, as a parent, I'm definitely more conservative. And therefore I find people like Jordan Peterson invigorating because... He's not condemning the other side, but rather he's engaging the other side and asking, have you really thought through your presuppositions and conclusions? Because I don't think you have. And here's what I think is the consequence of that. Right. And especially for those of us in the conservative church, if we are to engage society and culture, especially youth who come out of high school and college who are indoctrinated in this social justice warrior equality of outcome ideology, how are we going to minister to that? How are we going to give a defense of our faith to people who ask, you know, are you in favor of gay marriage? And if you say no, they say you're, you are a homophobe and I'm not going to come to your church now. You're not, you know, that kind of thing mm-hmm. versus that's the wrong question. Right. It's not, am I or am I not in favor of gay marriage, but rather why are you asking the question mm-hmm. and what do you think gay marriage means? Right. And, and so to again, to reason together with that, to say, Let's open up the Bible and let's read right. through it together and let's find out. We might, we know, might call we, that free thinking versus group think, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So let, let's that. be free thinking within people. <laughs> the, within the parameters of scripture, within the parameters mm-hmm. of our Lutheran confessions, inside those boundaries, there's freedom to work, to move, to engage in the dialogue, to say, I can't cross that boundary with you. However, I can speak to you from this side of the street and invite you to come across the street and have this conversation with me over here. Mm-hmm. That's right. Over there, I can, I can talk with you about where you're coming from, your philosophy, your ideology. But if you want to understand where I'm coming from, you got to cross to this side of the street too. We got to meet somewhere yeah. to have that dialogue. We can't just yell at each other <laughs> from opposite sides. 
Um, and this is what concerns me as a pastor, concerns me as a parent, concerns me as a human being is the, the space for dialogue is shrinking. Yeah. And social media is a failed experiment. That is not the place to have this dialogue. It's got to be for that purpose. Yeah. For that purpose. Yeah. For that purpose. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because it is just hurling assertions across the ether at each other. Yeah. Which is why we like Instagram because we just send pictures of our cats and kids and, <laughs> exactly, and food exactly you want to make a political statement in, in picture forum it's easy for me to see it i can just un- well yeah that's right you block yeah, that's you right. that's right it's great it's just it's much simpler mm-hmm. again the power of symbol yep so uh yeah thanks for listening to the podcast as always subscribe uh the more positive comments you leave um, the more the podcast gets pumped up and shows up in other people's feeds. Uh, mm-hmm. So we really appreciate positive reviews. Uh, subscribe, please. Make us the number one po- Lutheran podcast in the world. It's a short climb, so you know, yeah, I know. <laughs> go for it. Uh, but we really do appreciate everything that you do for us. Uh, I appreciate all the feedback, especially all the positive feedback. It's been phenomenal. Uh, go buy Gillespie's coffee. He has children to feed. It's True. the best coffee in the world, bar none. And, um, you know, buy for your church. You want to improve the worship of your congregation in the morning? Absolutely. Have, have Gillespie's coffee during Bible study before service. Have Gillespie's coffee after service. It'll make your whole day better, I promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so look it up. Buy it. Love it. Put it, put uh, it like under your evangelism budget. You know, you there can we tell go. People, we have great coffee. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I like that. I'm going to do that at my church. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. But, uh, we appreciate, as always, we really appreciate you listening to the podcast and hanging around for the whole thing. And uh, I hope we pass the audition. See ya. Do you like what you're listening to? Higher Things podcasts are free for you, but they aren't free to produce. Please consider supporting the Higher Things podcasts as Lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support